What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to the 27th episode of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game. You can visit them at rosinevolution.com. This episode marks two years since we released episode one with Camden from Pool Extracts, which is wild but awesome. A special thank you to everyone who's made this possible. From the guests who shared their experiences, their tech, their insight, to anyone who's listened, as well as our sponsors, and especially to anyone who's ever been part of our community on Patreon. Thank each and every one of you for allowing us to make it all the way through year two. As we work our way into year three, I wanted to have someone on who I feel has been influential in the modern hash story. Marcus, aka Bubble Man. And although he's an extremely busy guy, he made some time to talk and we cover a lot of ground in that time. We talk about hash history, the evolution of filtration bags, as well as Marcus's personal cannabis career and its evolution from his early experiences with cannabis in Manitoba to now working in Canada's legal cannabis market. And as a side note, this also marks our first Canadian hash maker on the show. So definitely stay tuned for that. A big shout out to our sponsors and main sponsor, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100. If you're pressing rosin, you already have so many variables in play. So do yourself a favor and buy Rosin Evolution bags and eliminate a very important variable in pressing great rosin, your rosin bags. Rosin Evolution makes their bags out of top grade nylon so that you don't have to worry if it's going to leak any funky stuff into your rosin, especially for those of you looking to go a little hotter. For example, if you're mechanically separating like the homie Rackums, it's yet another reason to visit rosinevolution.com for all your rosin needs. And while you're there, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710, that's THI710, to save an additional 5% on your entire order while supporting the podcast. Shout out to our homies Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company. You can visit them at powersplates.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com or on Instagram at powersplates. They're going to be putting out some sick new looking plates and we're going to be doing an exclusive giveaway for our listeners. They're going to be giving away a Powers Plates 4x8 Pro Kit. So stay tuned for the details in the episode, as well as visiting powersplates.com to learn more about the giveaway and to check out their new badass looking plates. And don't forget to use our exclusive savings code, the letters THI, to save $75 off their 4x8 plates. Shout out to Six Star Society, your solventless apparel company. You can visit them at sixstarsociety.com. That's sixstarsociety.com or on Instagram at six underscore star underscore society. If you love hash and you want some gear to reflect that, visit the homie Six Star Society. They have all things hash, whether you need to stay dry and warm or just look and fly. They have a ton of creative designs, including artistic collaborations with other artists. And as you would expect with a company called Six Star, all their gear is made of the highest quality material and it's made to last. So visit them at sixstarsociety.com and use our exclusive savings code, the letters THI, to save 5% on your entire order. And last but not least, shout out to our homies and your thermal jacketing specialist, Pele Polare. You can visit them at pelepolareco.com or on Instagram at pele underscore polare 
Not only can they assist you with your current washing vessel by helping you combat one of Hashmaker's main obstacles, condensation with one of their customizable high-grade thermal jackets, but now they can also assist you if you choose to upgrade your vessel. They have a range of new stainless steel washing vessels that come in a variety of sizes and are built to last with a standard pro drain valve and options like adding a sight glass for a very reasonable price. So if you need any help in making your washing process more efficient, visit our homies at pelepolaresco.com and use our savings code, the letters THI, to save 5% on your entire order. And the last thing I'll say is if you get the opportunity to leave us a written review on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. It's always good to hear how people are feeling about the podcast and it helps others get an idea of what they're getting into when they fire up the podcast for the first time. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Today, we have a legend on the show, Marcus, much better known as Bubble Man. You can follow him on Instagram at bcbubbleman or on his websites, bubblebags.com or freshheadies.com. Dude, I am super thankful that you made time to talk to me. Well, honestly, I want to thank you for putting together such a great podcast. I'm a fan of the podcast. I was uh, always enjoying the episodes as they came out and uh, was super stoked to get an invitation and be a part of it. So thank you. Yeah, that's so wild for me. You know, we spoke the other day and we were talking about something else and you mentioned listening to the podcast and uh, I was kind of like, to be honest, a little taken aback because I didn't imagine that you did, but it's an honor that you do. And I appreciate, you know, the kind words, you know, in all honesty, out of all the interviews that I've done, I think that this is the most like surreal one for me because you're like a hash celeb, but oddly you feel familiar at the same time because I've spent hours watching your videos, you know, hash church included. and it's super cool to be actually talking to you one-on-one and I'll be a little weird. You know, I'm super excited to be here with you on multiple levels, dude. And you have a cool story. You're incredibly well articulated. You're very knowledgeable about cannabis, about trichomes, about hash, very knowledgeable about history, which is something that's extra exciting to me. So let's jump into this, man. Let's pick up our conversation from a few days ago. Let's talk about a question that you told me that you've heard a lot in the last 20 years, which is, Marcus, where's the bubble in Texas? Yeah, isn't that a good question? You know, a lot of people, I mean, listen, the bubble bag hotline, 1-866-MELTING, used to ring in my pocket for years, and it used to absolutely twist people's minds. They'd be like, is this bubble man? I'm like, yeah, it's bubble man. And they'd be like, whoa. And I'd be like, what? Like, who else is going to answer my phone, dude? Like, this is, I'm a startup company here, man. I don't have employees. I'm just trying to push through here. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a ton of people would always uh, order bags from Texas. Texas is, is a, you know, a very large bubble bag purchaser. And we'll get into that more because it's kind of the punchline of the story. But tons of people would, you know, call me from Texas and be like, I got to order some bags. There's no bubble in Texas. There's no bubble in Texas. And I'd be like, well, yes, you do need to order some bags, but there is bubble in Texas. There's spectacular bubble in Texas and there's a fair bit of it. The problem 
as anyone who lives in Texas knows, which was very easy to get them to relate to it, is that uh, you, you, are, you have to be extra protective. So for any of you that have survived in a, uh, lived and survived in a prohibition state or prohibition country, Texas is, you know, it's not, it's not Malaysia where they're going to hang you, but it's, it's definitely like a good solid 10 year mandatory minimum that you're probably going to get for hashish. It's like fucking heroin in Texas. Pardon my French. Um, so, and then they'd always be like, Oh my God, of course you're right. I'm like, yeah, dude, the guy you're playing pool with that you're connecting with. Cause he had a fish shirt on, he's got bubble in his pocket but he just can't risk it. It's just not fair, you know, because unfortunately the, the scrupulous powers that be on that nefarious side of, of the law will use things like that to their advantage. And so that's, you know, Texas is second only to California for the purchase of bubble bags. They're an absolutely huge customer of ours and we have uh, nothing but respect for Texas. We don't mess with Texas, but we surely support them. Yeah, that's funny, man. I was really surprised by that. But then at the same time, I was telling you that, you know, now that the podcast has been going on for almost two years, I was at first really surprised to see Texas as a top listener. And now they're like the number three, right? So there's California, there's Colorado, and then there's Texas. And like you said, you know, Texas, dude, uh, any kind of concentrate, any kind of cannabis concentrate is a felony. So it's still hardcore here. You know, it's not, it's not like a joke, but it's funny to think that there's so many people still doing it. And I can see it because there is that kind of outlaw mentality or kind of do it yourself mentality here that I could see people doing that. But like you said, you have to be safe and, you know, you don't, you're not out sharing it or it's probably like a personal thing. Totally. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, Texas is as, as conservative of a state it, 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 is, it, it is, it's also not. And the people are very much like, you know, like it takes a certain government to govern Texas. They're not just a people that you're going to push around and tell what to do. So you can make those mandatory minimums and throw those 10 year sentences. But, you know, what a Texan will do is, buy the bags, make the hash, grow the weed, but they won't flex it like someone from right. So let's talk about an interesting aspect about the bags, which is shipping them. You know, I'm curious how that's evolved and has it become less of a challenge as the years have gone by? 100%, uh, 100% less. When I started in 1999, if you can imagine, it was like, dude, it was sketchy. It was like, okay, I'm a legal business, but will the police visit me and have a problem with this? You know, I consulted with my lawyer and he was like, you should be okay. You should be okay. And so I would ship the bags very carefully as multitask filtration kits, which they are. So from the very early days, I was forced to figure out other things that you could do with bubble bags. So one of the things I did from a scuba diving uh, perspective was that they were great for cleaning dive equipment of salt water. So you could like throw all your dive equipment into a 20 gallon 220 and just put the hose on the top and spray the water off and give it a bit of a shake. And you could really clean your, your equipment of salt water really quite nicely. So that was one tool. I was at the lake one day and I scooped up the 20 
25 micron with some water and it was coming out like a shower. So I hung it up on the tree and I stood underneath it and I said, it's also a lake shower. And then uh, I started extracting other resins from other plants so that I could promote it as an essential oil gland isolator system. Uh, that that's one of the things you could do with it. And so I did roses and I did herba mate and I did mint and I did, uh, I don't know, maybe between eight and 12 different varieties of plants that, sec that secrete essential oils out of glandular trichomes. Uh, I ran them all through my bags and I, I came up with some interesting things. Over the years, some of these things got posted on like my old website, which was Full Melt Bubble. Com. I know I posted the roses and the mint over there. Overgrow, unfortunately, got taken down. Overgrow.com, which is really where Bubble Man and Bubble Bags got its start. Uh, surely I was on Cannabis.com, Cannabis Culture, Cannabis World, but they were all very small blips compared to the beast, the mammoth that was Overgrow.com. Yeah, I think I'm familiar with some of those images and, and maybe you even going through some instructional videos of you washing things that that wasn't cannabis, you know, at the time. Exactly. So now fast forward some years because I got to be careful. I got to be really careful because if I put and this is a, such a trip to be able to tell you this, to kind of give you an idea of where we're coming into now, almost 25 years later. Um, the banks were the biggest challenges. So you had to, you tried to get PayPal, but then PayPal finds out what I'm doing. Basically someone that's my competitor sends an email. Hey, this guy's selling hash bags. Boom. They slam the account six grand us. It's being held for six months. This was in the startup of my company. Um, so I get a new company called Beanstream on Vancouver Island. I sell a bunch of bags, five or six grand worth. Boom. The account gets closed. The money gets held for six months. Now I'm like, holy shit. Like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. This is crazy. I wasn't actually funding my business illegally as like you would just expect someone like myself to be doing, because let's be honest, we know, we know what's going on. Like that's pretty standard, but right. I wasn't doing that. I had just been arrested some months prior with 16 and a half pounds at a roadblock and six grand cash. And it was kind of like, I was hot. I wasn't like messing around and breaking the law in any way, shape or form. The whole purpose of doing bubble bags was to pay taxes, to pick, to be legal and to just create a really cool, safe business that would, you know, both get people to make hash around the world, but also uh, support a lovely uh, lifestyle for my family. And so that was a super challenge. And I had to break the websites up, have bubblebag.com and Fresh Headies. Fresh Headies was the water extraction filtration with herbs. You would never see any hash talk on there. And that's where we took the orders for credit cards. But people would go to bubblebag.com to see it. Well, that doesn't have to be that way anymore because the, my bank called me very recently and they said, oh, Mr. Richardson, we'd like to talk to you about your, your accounts at Fresh Headies. Right away, I'm like, Oh, great. They're closing my accounts. They only did it. <laughs> right. 100%. They do this still to this day. Royal Bank did this to me just three or four years ago. Over a 30-day period, they called me. They said, in 30 days, we are canceling all your accounts. And I had like six or seven bank accounts, mortgages, the whole nine yards. It was a huge nightmare. It was an enormous amount of stress to put on me for no reason other than the fact that I'm a habitual florist and I appreciate cannabis and cannabis resins. It was total bullshit. On the flip side of that, now they're calling me and saying, we want to work with you. 
Like we noticed you're doing like this, some weird stuff with taking money from credit. We would like to offer you credit card services. I'm like, okay, now we're talking. So on the flip side of that, U.S. and Canada Customs got together about five or six or seven years ago, and they decided to give me and my company a harmonization code for my bags, which makes the bags travel from one country to the other quite easily, meaning both customs have signed off that these are harmless products that aren't doing any harm, and we don't have to uh, monitor or worry about them. So that made me feel really good, too. Between that and the bank calling me to offer me you know, because I'm paying way more than I should be using these other services. Yeah, it's definitely evolved. And it's funny, you know, now it's like the money is good enough for them because I guess the system's in place for it to to be okay for them to take it. But I've heard various people tell stories about either having to go to Canada to grab your bags at some point, or like, uh, I think maybe it was Kaya who talked about only being able to get your bags in one place in Washington at a local shop. So it was so much harder and now it's just so commonplace. And, you know, going back to the business of bags, you were saying that now Colorado has probably overtaken Texas as a number two. And so as you see these kind of geographical shifts and world shifts really with Waterhash, you know, respectfully, I'm curious how the business, the bag business is right now. I mean, it's great. It's as good as it's ever been, if not better. You know, I um, was very happy to say that um, I worked through my lawsuit that I had going with Reinhard Delp, who was the original patent owner of the ice cold extractor, which all uh, water hash bags are based on. Originally, the isolator bags, which were invented by a good friend of mine by the name of Eldon and Mark Rose, who's my current manufacturer. Um, he named the bags isolator bags after looking at Reinhardt Delp's machine. And Mila, who had just signed a deal with Reinhardt Delp, decided that uh, when she heard Eldon say two five-gallon shaped bags, nylon with a screen bottom and a five-gallon bucket, and you've got the same thing. Well, the three of them had a light bulb go off. They started to manufacture these bags. It was only a two-bag system. This was in 98 that the first isolator bags hit the, hit the, the Amsterdam uh, scene. I ended up getting a pair and running them and it was very hard to make anything worthwhile, as you could imagine, with only a 200 and a 70. Um, eventually, I would get lucky and Breeder Steve would give me some um, shishkaberry. Um, I don't know if it was trim or flower. It must have been trim back in those days, for sure. Uh, it was from the yellow line of the shishkaberry. For those that are in the know, there were two Afghanis used in that, the red and the yellow. Uh, this was the yellow cross and it was spectacular and it came out actually like beautiful. It's what, it, what, it's what made me want to sell isolator bags. Uh, we can get into that whole story why I didn't end up uh, selling isolator bags, but uh, yeah, shout out to Reinhard Delp. Uh, he really is. Um, there were people that came before him, you know, uh, Skunkman Sam had uh, the Sadhu Sam's water extraction secret, which was basically a $10 uh, instructional that he'd send you to your PO box that said, take a glass mason jar, shake weed and ice and water up, let it sit on the, on the windowsill, scoop off the herb, pour through coffee filter, collect the hash. Also not the most in 
not the best way to be inspired by water hash, you know, and then the fact that people back then were also taking it and pressing it wet and really even doing it a greater disservice. Um, you know, that's, that's another story altogether, but I did want to shout out Reinhardt Delp, uh, because he was a big part of this. All the bags were based on him and uh, myself um, and Jason from Payload, I believe, were the only two water extraction bag companies to pay out that patent. Um, and it's really unfortunate because when you know the history and you know the story, it doesn't matter who you copied. If you copied a bag set and you innovated it and made it better and all these other things like I did, um, you still should pay the piper. You should do what's right. And it was sad to see how few of the other companies in the space w- were willing to pay that man any money. Yeah, I have, you know, a ton of questions about this story. I've heard you tell it a few times and I'm not sure what parts I want to get into necessarily right now, but before we get into kind of like the historical part of the bags, I'm curious as being in the industry so long, being so knowledgeable about hash and bags being a big part of your business, do you ever see bags being phased out of water hash making, for example, in systems like Whistler Techs, which you're also involved in? No, not at all. In fact, uh, most of the Whistler Tech systems that are out there collect in bubble bags. A lot of them, in fact. There's still very few that are using whole, you know, industrialized, commercialized stainless steel screens. The bags are easy to work with. I use the labs in my lab every day. We pull 64 to 75 20-gallon bags in an eight-hour shift. And uh, that's just at a business. Now, I could see one day, you know, Whistler Technologies, we are definitely working. We have an amazing team of engineers and and Daniel, the the main owner is an incredible guy, really dynamic. And, you know, he's he's out there thinking out of the box and I feel like we've done a good job. We still have a, a long ways to go in regards to creating more innovation. I'd like to see us working on more bottom spinning versus impeller turning. I like the idea of just checking rather than guessing one side, why not come at both sides and figure out what truly is the best vortex mix. I never want to stop studying ice, the size of the ice, the density of the ice, you know, how hard you can make it, how well it shears trichome heads off. You know, all of these things are always going to be a focus, but you got to be honest, there's always going to be people at home who cannot afford tens of thousands of dollars who are going to buy a set of bags for one or two or three or 400 bucks. Easy peasy right at home. It's safe. It's easy. You can do that shit in your kitchen while your kids at the dinner table doing homework. It's uh, <laughs> it's, it's safe. It's, it's not a danger to society. Uh, it's not a danger to children. I can't tell you how amazing it feels to finally live in a place like British Columbia, where the laws aren't against me, where recreational is legal and where I'm also a patient, where I'm allowed to have, I'm allowed to have 10 kilos of product at my house, like hash or oil or isolate, whatever. I'm, as a medical patient, I have an almost 10 kilo limit for what I can store at my house. I can grow 98 plants anytime I want. I'm so busy. I haven't in a long time. Uh, but this, this is, this is something we need to get you guys in Texas and everywhere else because 
it's, it's an undue stress to live in, to have this kind of stress and the stress that it causes on all your relationships with your family members. It's just unnecessary. Um, they need, they need to change the laws. Yeah. I've heard you refer to not being able to access cannabis in a lawful way as being a crime against humanity. Oh yeah. 100%. It is because what I'm talking about, you know, even in this day and age, it's the, the, the paranoia is so great. And when there's people who are being funded to hunt down people who just like to grow cannabis and smoke cannabis, and it's kind of like, look, guys, we're not the cartel. Like this is, I think this has all been uncovered at this point. Like there's lots of States allowing this, like get on board, dude. Like, are you kidding me? You're going to, you're going to be behind Oklahoma. Texas. I'm ashamed of you. You can't be behind Oklahoma. You got to pick up your slacks and you got to like get this plant, you know, normalized. So many people in your state use this plant. That's the crazy thing. You have a lot of cannabis lovers. Yeah, for sure. I think worldwide, but Texas is definitely like a, you know, it's like the sleeping giant, I feel like of, of legalization in regards to cannabis within the U.S., Totally. I mean, I'll, t- I'll be honest. I never thought Oklahoma would legalize. I remember when they gave Will Foster 98 years in prison and 66 of them were just because he had children in his home where he was growing cannabis. And that's like a point of like, I really have a point of contention with that. Like it's okay for everyone to have enough alcohol to kill 10 or 15 children in their house unlocked up. It's okay to have pharmaceutical drugs that could kill 10 to 15 children, sometimes in just one bottle, not locked up, but you have to treat cannabis like plutonium. So I'm not going to stop until that flips and we're on the other side and, that, and then, you know, take alcohol and some of these super dangerous pharmaceutical drugs that kill millions of people, you know, annually between the two of them and, and maybe make that a little bit more regulated. And I, I'm not into prohibiting anything, but, uh, you know, there's levels of regulation as we, we see. I'm curious as a parent with your views on cannabis, having children of your own, what do you think would be an age that you would feel comfortable them consuming cannabis at this point? You know, that's an interesting question. And I'd probably have a better answer if any of my kids had consumed cannabis. I have a 19 year old daughter who was mortified the whole time she was in high school that I was bubble man. So she's definitely not using cannabis. My son is into music, piano, and he's really exceptional at math and physics and chemistry. He's a very good student getting all 90s in his grade 12 class. So he's, his, you know, he's, he's into baking, making bread and stuff, but he's, you know, he's bubble man style where he's weighing everything out instead of measuring it in cups and <laughs> right. scales with like two points on it. So he's got these sorts of things going on, but both my teenagers, like, unless they've totally not told me, which they would, I mean, I, I wouldn't have a problem with it. They've never used it. And my other son is six years old. So, I mean, I used it at 14. I guess as a parent now, I would have probably been shocked to see my kid puffing herbs at like 14. Although <laughs> right. that's, that's when I did, I've sort of been, um, you know, saved from the question in a sense, because my teenagers don't, use cannabis, you know, and it's always like that. I mean, they're, you know, of course, bubble man's kids aren't huge potheads. Like, you know, what did my parents do? Well, they worked for the police and the fire department. So they were like these government jobs where you were like following the lines, wearing uniforms. And I was just like, 
I'm going to smoke weed instead, you know? Like, <laughs> so the way my kids did that were, I'm not going to do that. That's how you rebel against your parents and the things that they do. So, yeah, that's pretty funny, man. You know, since you brought up your youth, your parents, tell me a little bit about Ron Hickey and his Ron, influence. Dude, Ron Hickey is like my, like my surrogate father. He's like a huge mentor to me. I mean, my goodness, even as I tell any story about Ron, I can hear him. I can feel him smiling with pride as he hears the words come out of my mouth about him. And it makes me feel good to make him feel good because he truly is an absolutely spectacular human being that you can only be so lucky to know him and to have him in, in your life. And so meeting him at a very young age, I mean, dude, I mean, this was in like the late eighties, early nineties when I was young, like a teenager. And like, I went to him with like, you know, I wanted to get advice. And this was in a city that was Bible belt. Like it might as well have been Texas for real. Winnipeg, Manitoba, you know, Ron had already done six and a half years in a federal penitentiary with like the most dangerous people you could imagine for cannabis growing. And then I met him and he had just kind of gotten out and he was just still like he owned hydroponics stores in the city. And he insisted on putting thousand watt light bulbs in the front windows to flash out to the, the streets to kind of let everyone know what he was doing. And all the while just, you know, being crazy Ron, like just, I must've been 17 or 18 when I went into his shop and he just like took me downstairs and he's like, all right, cut the shit. I know we're not talking about tomatoes. We're talking about weed. So let's talk about weed. And then he just gave me the best advice ever and like offered to come over and help me. And, you know, he took me under his wing in a way where when I was a very, very young person in Winnipeg, he was bringing me around to like an insane amount of illegal grows all over the city. And let me tell you the looks of the people who were sitting on those grows when they saw my face, I must've looked 11 years old to these guys. And some of these, some of these dudes were pretty, you know, pretty hardcore. Like you had to be hardcore to be growing weed in Winnipeg. And Ron was just helping everyone. He wanted to facilitate everyone to grow weed. He wanted to have everyone to have the best weed. He was just, he's so dynamic and so incredible and his personality can never fit in a room. You just want to be his best friend the minute you meet him. And of course, I get to spend decades with the man and get to be right under his wing and learn how to grow and learn all about his OCDs and learn about how like, you know, everything's good and rock and roll if you listen. But if you don't, you're going to get barked at hard. And it's funny because I have a video with Ron where he's a little late and tired. We're making dry sift and I'm barking at him, a thing that I learned from him. And man, do I take a beating in the comment sections. This bull man guy's a dick. Just like, <laughs> well, you know, like we, Ron and I are close and we have a unique relationship and we can bust each other's balls when the other one's not, not listening correctly. But to me, Ron will always be the master and I'll always be the student um, he's, you know, he's, I mean, what can I say about Ron? I mean, I, we could do an entire podcast and I honestly suggest you do a podcast with Ron Hickey because <laughs> his stories are untouched. Maybe skunk man, Sam, those two guys, the, the stories that they have are untouched. No one can, no one has that. Hey, if you plug me, Mark, I'll make it happen. Yeah, man, I can get you in touch with those guys. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, it's funny. Your comment about the tomatoes uh, brought up the idea of like, I think grow shops were only 
able to talk about stuff, you know, under the guise of it being tomatoes. So that was a pretty funny uh, reference, you know, and I'm curious seeing so many grows back then. This is what, like mid eighties, you said? Yeah. Like late eighties, early nineties. What were the grows like back then? You know, was everybody rocking like rock wool or? Well, Ron created a system back then, which was called the the tube system. So he created that round white four tube system with the pots in it and the drip system and the, the res that was, that was Ron, like Ron created that. And so he always had those systems and uh, he had ebb and flow tables and other stuff, but often it was a lot of it was like, you know, kind of rock and roll, like the early days before I learned about organics and all the Ron now is like all organics and worm castings. But back then it would have been salt newts and, you know, like, uh, um, you know, growing the best you could, but because Ron gave it so much attention, incredible detail, attention to detail that you can't like beyond OCD, like almost like, dude, you belong in a psych ward. That is absolutely (laughs) psychotic. You could never ask a person to do, he could never get anyone to do what he wanted to do because no one is Ron. But when he did it and he would literally do it, he he would make sure each and every one of those crops was successful. He'd be driving around all days. I'd wake up at 10 in the morning. I'd come home at four or five at night. And it happened consistently all the time because he's just like, we got to go here. We got to go there. We got to go take care of these plants. This is having a problem. That's having a problem. And then he'd, you know, kind of be like, Hey, listen to me, what I'm telling you, you got to do this and this and this and this. And it's like, dude, no one is as obsessive as you. For instance, as a 60 plus year old man, he was growing huge plants in giant pots uh, in his greenhouse. But then one day he was sitting there and he noticed the sun was stronger on his deck. So then he opens up the greenhouse, pulls out every plant, puts it on the deck but then he notices the sun went behind the tree. So he takes every plant, he moves it again. Well, he's doing this six to seven times a day for oh. an entire crop over the course of months and months and months. Do you understand how psychotic that is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he seems pretty uh, devoted, let's call it. Dude, he's awesome. I, I love that man. And, uh, can, you know, I could talk about Ron for forever. He's, he's the best. Yeah, no, that's cool, man. I appreciate you sharing that with us. You know, touching again on your early childhood, I've heard you talk about playing hockey, you know, taking it pretty seriously. I don't remember if you were like on the elite level team or not, but regardless, you were still waking up real early, being real devoted to it. And I'm curious if you feel like that has translated in your work over time, whether it being cannabis or not? It would have to, because it was military training. Like it was, it was that high level hockey. You had to try out to earn a position on the team. I would go to the Canadian professional hockey school. Before that, I would go to the Montreal Canadians hockey school where Guy Lafleur and Bob Ganey and Larry Robinson and these like professional NHL players were my, were my coaches for like the month. You know, we would do Ironman challenges where we would skate for 10 kilometers, swim for two and a half kilometers and run for maybe six or seven kilometers, you know, like a mini Ironman challenge for 11, 12, 13 year old boys. So I remember working out at six in the morning, like a person in the military. And I loved it because I loved hockey. I remember like going to this big hill in, in the neighborhood and like running up it and then running down it backwards and then running up it backwards and doing all of these like man killers and these different sort of techniques that were just 
utterly destroying me. Push-ups, I could drop at that time in my life when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, I could drop and just do a hundred push-ups, like no problem, a hundred right in a row. And my son's like 17 now, he's six foot four and he's ripped and he's still unable to do a hundred push-ups just dropping to the floor. So it, I trained really hard back then and it taught me, you know, it taught me about hard work and it taught me, it taught me about perseverance and it taught me about reward and how reward doesn't come just because someone say, says, here, you get a participation trophy because you participated. Reward comes from, from, from winning, from succeeding, from getting to, from one level to another level, whatever your goal is, you know, and in hockey, the goal was a goal to score goals in the net, you know, but in business, it can be a little bit different. Nonetheless, it's, uh, it taught me a lot about that. I, I can't deny it. Yeah. And then you had your Abba Zaba moment. I had my Abba Zaba moment when I was 14 and I smoked a joint with Steve McAvoy behind the BFI at Fraser Food Store. A little like, you know, like little mini, like a 7-Eleven. But, bef- you know, before that, even it was just like little corner stores. They all had different names. And um, I'll tell you, that was a revelation. I remember just being so happy and running out with our skateboards and like, woo, we were just like, yeah. <laughs> huge rite of passage for some young boys that weren't being given any rite of passages by anyone. You know, we weren't on anyone's radar. Unless you came from some religion, you weren't going to be shown a rite of passage unless you created one. And for us, it was that joint. And we got on that bus and we talked and joked. And I remember pushing my hat in and feeling like, whoa, dude, my head is like just being completely 14 and and stoned. And I thought it was... uh, it was truly exactly like Dave Chappelle in Abba, in uh, Half Baked, Abba Zaba, you my only friend. I just uh, was, I was in, I was a lifer right there. Yeah, but interestingly enough, you came from, like you said, two parents that probably weren't into cannabis. And so I'm curious, you know, how they viewed you getting into it and how them being, for example, in your mom's position with the police, was that a factor in you feeling more enabled to use cannabis? Well, good question. Because A, I found out later in, in life that my mom never used cannabis at all. She just wasn't into it at all. My mom didn't drink. She didn't, she didn't do any of that stuff. I found out later though, my dad was a big hash smoker and that he liked hash. And that blew my mind. He was like, I liked hash back in the day. I'm not going to lie. And he's (laughs) telling me some of these stories. And so he knew, he recognized it. And he's the one that pulled me aside when I was 17. And he said, listen, if you're going to do this, you better do it right. You're living in a place where you could catch charges. You could end up in Stony Mountain this is no joke. You have to be really careful. And it was his advice that led me to be a hemp activist. You know, that's why I was like, okay, I'm going to go down this hemp activism road. I'm going to see if we can open this door. And that door that we opened, (laughs) I mean, that was serious. Now we weren't the only ones that opened it. We opened it in our province, my small little group. There was Martin Moravchik and there was Neil Chippendale and there was John Gio and there was Alex Schwayeski and there was myself. 
And we were kind of the hemp, the Manitoba Hemp Alliance was another group with the university kids and our store was called the Hemp Exchange. And we were the ones to approach our minister of finance and agriculture and say, hey, listen, there's value in growing this. And somehow we convinced them. And nine or 10 months later in 1995, we got a permit to grow an experimental five acre field. And we imported four tons of low THC Zolotonosha 11 and 13 from Kiev in Ukraine to Winnipeg, Manitoba. And we planted that seed and we grew Zolotonosha. And I brought Ron in my orange Volkswagen van I wonder if I have a picture of that because that would just be too awesome. Oh, I probably don't. But I do have a picture of the field just here on my phone that I can share with you. But I brought Ron to that field because he had, he, and it brought a tear to his eye. It brought a tear to his eye. This is me and John Gio in that field. Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with that image, actually. It's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, dude. So I brought Ron there when the plants were six, seven feet tall in my orange Volkswagen van and we drove through the center of the field. There was this narrow road and he, I'll just never forget how happy he was, you know, for a man to have lost almost seven years of his life in a federal penitentiary with murderers and dangerous, dangerous human beings. And of course, you know, what did Ron do while he was in prison? Well, Ron did what Ron does. He made prison a better place. And every time he left prison, both times, which he served almost six years each time, um, the prison guards were very sad to see him go because he kept people from getting stabbed. He kept fights from erupting and he made sure that everyone was smoking on the kind kind. And that's what more can you, you know, can you do when you're, when you're in the big house? Yeah. And tell me a little bit about how you got that seed stock that you started planting in Manitoba. Okay. We went to the cannabis cup. Um, I actually skipped this year. I think it was 94, uh, so John and Martin went to the Cannabis Cup, maybe Alex as well. I think I skipped this year and, oh yeah. Uh, so I think I skipped that year and basically they went to the Cannabis Cup. They met this guy by the name of John Stahl and John Stahl was an expat American living in the Ukraine and he was working with Sasha and Goro Borodko from the Institute of Bass Fibers, these hemp farmers. And he wanted to kind of figure out if he could bring this hemp seed that they were growing. They were very, you know, in rough times, They it was hard to put fuel in the tractor and they were just looking for, you know, a miracle kind of thing. And he went to the Cannabis Cup thinking that it would be like a hemp event in 1994. Well, 1994 was the first year they made the Cannabis Cup open to the public. And so it was not what he was expecting. It was just a bunch of people like me getting together and smoking hash and joints and, and just enjoying themselves, which I did the next year when I went to my first Cannabis Cup in 1995. Um, so they met John. John said, I've got this Ukrainian seed, blah, 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 blah. It's super low THC. Go to Borotko. You figured out a litmus test. He walks around the field and he can test these plants. And if it turns purple... He cuts the plant out and he's been doing this for 20 plus years and he's got the THC down to not zero, not 0 0.3, 0.03. So 10 times lower than the legal limit max is the Zola Tenosha. And so we, we approached our minister with that information, with our connection to John Stahl. And in fact, I used my own money from a car accident that I sunk 100% into that Zola Tenosha 
never saw that again, but it was this, you know, it was the start of that seed. And it's funny because I spoke with my partner a while ago, Martin, my old partner, and he didn't remember that. He was like, I thought I bought that seed. I'm like, Martin, where the hell were you going to get $20,000 from back then? Like, come on, (laughs) as if you paid for that seat. I paid for it. It was about 16,000 US dollars, I think, almost 20,000 Canadian. So, but it started the ball rolling. I ended up moving out of Manitoba that next year in 96. Martin and Alex and those guys, they maintained the hemp thing. They started Manitoba Harvest and, you know, they sold that company for $135 million to the Compass Group. And then the Compass Group sold it about four years later to Tilray. Uh, a licensed production facility across the water here. And they paid $419 million for that company. So it's kind of neat to think that, you know, we all started that. Like I, I had a part in that Martin and, and Mike and, and Alex, they obviously built that company and, you know, hundred percent of the props goes to them on that, but they couldn't have done it without those first hemp seeds getting imported in from uh, the Ukraine and getting paid for and getting planted. And so it's nice to be a part of that and to have left that while that was going on and to move to BC and hook up with Hillary Black and have her create and, and start the BC Compassion Club, you know, where I got to be a witness to watching that sometimes in my own living room while she was doing it. And then to be able to facilitate her with my philanthropy and her philanthropy combined, as well as just helping them out in any way, shape or form that we could. That was how I knew I had made the right decision to move West. Yeah, that's cool, man. And, you know, it's interesting thinking about where they were testing the plants and they were essentially breeding out, I'm assuming things with high THC, right? Getting it down to a very, very low, like 0.03, like you said, THC level over 20 years. He figured out a tech and it didn't have to be the most, you know, like immediately efficient tech. It just had to be a little bit efficient. And then his consistency just reduce the THC percentage. There's really standard breeding techniques out there. And he's an actual breeder and a, far- and a farmer on large scale. He's dealing with hundreds of thousands of seeds, not like uh, a pack of 10. <laughs> right. And here and in other places, it's like the opposite was, it was happening, right? Like people were going and growing underground and trying to get, I think you've said something along the lines of like as much weight as possible as as fast as possible yeah the how much can i get and how fast can i get it prohibition mentality of growing and i met a lot of those guys and you know what listen even those guys their civil disobedience absolutely pushed us to where we are today so you know what I got to have an appreciation for them as well i do on the flip side of things feel bad for the novel terpenes that we've maybe not lost but misplaced for sure uh that only perform and express after many, many, many more weeks past six or seven or eight or nine. And, uh, you know, also need to be grown under tropical sun and, and whatnot. So I look forward to the day where terroir is a reality in cannabis, the way it is in wine. I don't want us to have to grow cannabis aseptically in clean lab like rooms with artificial lights and, you know, hydroponics and salts. Like I would love to be able to grow cannabis for medicine out in a field in a closed loop, regenerative, sustainable, organic setting uh, where I could get that plant and that soil to really communicate with one another and to have the mycorrhizae fungus communicating with both of them, getting that plant, everything it needs out of the soil and expressing itself in a way that, 
plants just don't tend to do when you when you feed them salts. Yeah, I've seen you've been really high on that. And I know on Hash Church now, Josh and Kelly are kind of a staple. And, you know, going back to the idea of Ron Hickey growing with salts, when you guys were trying to do the hemp thing in Manitoba, what were the growing practices? And was the goal from there always like aspiring to reach something like a dragon uh, earthfly medicine model? We weren't as in the know back then, but we definitely had access to things. I was listening and reading to Terrence McKenna. <laughs> so I obviously had, you know, there were people who were inspiring me. I didn't understand enough about living soils. I wasn't going to be focusing myself on growing. We did go right to agricultural communities, hire actual farmers who practice, you know, regular, you know, not huge, big ag farmers, but some kind of in-between guys. Um, definitely, I know for Manitoba Harvest that not all of their material is at, or was organic, but I think some has been over the years. It's just another one of those things. Um, I would have been all about that, even to this day. Like if we bring our technology out uh, one day uh, to do more on extracting cannabis oils and protein powder isolates, I'm not sure that. Uh, We'll do it with with non-organic cannabis. It just seems like um, if you're going to consume, you know, why not consume? I'm I'm super stoked to say my hashes are are organic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think that's kind of the way that things are trending now, and it's nothing necessarily novel, right? It's actually something that maybe has been practiced over time in different ways in different parts of the world that now is being almost like put together this knowledge and, and made into a deeper knowledge. So, so it's cool. You know, um, I agree with that. And, you know, from the hemp angle, then it seemed like you went from growing in Manitoba, but then you also had like a small clothing hemp type company and you were going to trade shows or, or shows via that company. And you were able to meet some really legendary people. So can you talk to me a little bit about those experiences and, and some of the people whose paths you've crossed? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my first cannabis cup was, was pretty, you know, at the time I was, I didn't, hadn't met any of these people. I got to my desk, my little table, four by four, dude sitting on there smoking a little bit of something, something out of his tiny little pipe. And I was like, my God, like, this is my table. I'm going to set up. And he's like, oh, this is your table. Well, we better, I guess I'm smoking hash with you. And I'm like, oh, okay, right on. I'm, I'm Marcus. He's like, oh, pleased to meet you. I'm Ed Rosenthal. And I was like, oh, fuck, dude, you're Ed Rosenthal, bro. Like I was growing from his books. Like I was, we were reading right. Ed Rosenthal and Mel Frank. Those were the two books that we chose to, and they were really, you know, there were other, other ones, but Mel Frank and Ed at the time, they were the ones, you know, so that was neat. And I'm, I'm like, all right, okay. Smoking hash with Ed Rosenthal. I kind of, I was pretty young. I was all like, wow, I just smoked hash with Ed Rosenthal. It's, I've been friends with Ed for, for 25 years now. So I, I'll smoke hash every time I see him. I've hung out with the guy in a half a dozen countries, maybe more. He's a wonderful man. I enjoy his wife as well. They're both very nice people. So shout out to Jane and Ed. Um, after that, it was another girl sat down and she introduced herself. Terrible that I don't remember her name, but her father was Jack Herrer. 
And Jack was, came over soon after, and he was sitting right next to me. Our booths were right next to each other on the third floor of the PAX Party House for the 1995 Cannabis Cup. And I was there with a hemp company. So of course those guys were like, you know, they wanted to feel the sweaters and the material and the, all these little things that we had collected that were hemp. And um, after that, it was- You were even, inspired by his book. So- Oh, dude, that's a whole story. So we told him right away, we said, bro, like we just got our first hemp field grown this year. We like, sh we showed pictures, you know, that was, that was 95. Um, and, you know, this, this was super exciting to be able to tell him like everything we took from your book got us to where we are. Like you literally, like we copy and pasted things out of your book. We used the billion dollar crop from the popular mechanics, 1932 article that you have in there. Like we told him straight up and he was of course stoked and proud as you know, any cool activist guy would be that was inspiring young people to make change. Yeah, that is cool, man. And just being able to meet all those really legends, like I said, you know, and, and have a, a meaningful relationship, even with, like you said, Ed Rosenthal and all that coming from the connection to the hemp, but being influenced by their books. And so it's cool. It, it almost kind of went full, full circle there. And then at that point, I feel like, you know, we need to talk about Amsterdam as like this umbrella, because that's where a lot of things seem to happen for you. So Let's break it down. When was your first trip to Amsterdam and what was the reason behind it? My first trip was November 1995 for the Cannabis Cup. So it would have been like the 22nd to the 30th or something. <laughs> I usually went for eight to 10 days uh, on those trips. So I went for the Cannabis Cup to sell our hempware and to kind of, you know, they had gone the year before and met John Stahl. So for them, our, my partners, they were like, this is a great event. Like we've got the Zola Tenosha from here. Let's go again and see who we can meet. And so I met so many people at that event, you know, it was just like from Soma to Ben Dronkers to, you know, the, the Cannabis Castle Tours to Neville the Breeder. I mean, I probably would have met Arian back at one of those cups, 95, 96, 97. He was definitely from, you know, I can't remember what year Franco showed up, but he was also, I remember him from for sure 2001, 2003, somewhere in that area, I'd always see Franco. Just yeah, everyone, right? Franco, man. I was always a big fan of Franco's. Of course. Yeah. You know, the last time I saw Franco was with, uh, I believe he was with Aryan and we saw them. I was looking for some veggie stew on the side of the road in uh, Jamaica and we kept driving and saw everyone's got jerk chicken. I don't eat chicken. I don't want chicken. I want the Ital stew, man. So I'm like driving and looking for it. And we see, I see the group. I'm like, dude, this guy for sure has my, my, my veggie stew so <laughs> over we jumped out. Uh, I was with Tony Verzura, actually, my partner at the time. And uh, yeah, we walked across the street, bumped into Aryan, and maybe Dust was there as well. And uh, Franco. And that was uh, unfortunately the last time I got to see Franco. So rest in peace to him. And also rest in peace to Marijuana Man, uh, one of the BC3 that was arrested by the DEA with Mark Emery and Michelle Rainey. Of course, rest in peace to Michelle Rainey because she's also gone uh, Greg Williams, marijuana man, passed away today, unfortunately. Um, he was quite sick, and uh, I wanted to say a shout-out to him as well and his family and the community as a whole. You know, Greg sold seeds for Mark Emery all over the world. He was Johnny Appleseed. Uh, he was loved by all and hated by none, and uh, I used to enjoy my times with him in Amsterdam as well. So shout-out to all the past fallen soldiers. 
Yeah, you know, we wouldn't be where we are in cannabis history without all these individuals that make up its collective history. So shout out to all of them and rip to all of them that have passed. So I don't feel like I would do this interview justice if I didn't mention the Katoys or Lady Boys, as I've heard you refer to them. This is a story of you meeting Rob Clark. But before you tell the story, you always preface it with that. And I feel like it was super impactful, almost as impactful as meeting Rob. So talk to me about it. Yeah, I think it was, you know, the set and the setting. I got, ta- I got brought to this Thai food restaurant. Of course, uh, I was a fan of Thailand. I hadn't visited there yet. I wouldn't go to Thailand for a couple more years. Uh, but I did get brought there by some friends. They were like, this place is the bomb. It's got the best Thai food. And they were like, and all the waiters, like all look like women, but they're, they're, they're all uh, like what, what they call in Thailand, katoys or lady boys. And if that is uh, in any way negative to anyone these days, I apologize. Those are the terms that I was told back then. I've never, I never heard, I didn't see it as being a negative comment, even when engaging uh, with people that were, uh, that were of that stature. But this particular restaurant was all lady boys. They were all the waiters and waitresses. Uh, in very tight dresses with high heel shoes. And it was a very small little place with, of course, a steep, you know, Amsterdam staircase. And uh, yeah, I, I bumped into Rob there. I didn't know, if, I don't think I knew who he was at the time, but he he offered me a rip out of this glass bong. And I was just like, holy shit, you can just smoke glass bongs in restaurants in Amsterdam, which was another part of the cool thing about this Thai food restaurant. Cause not every restaurant not even close to every restaurant in Amsterdam will let you do that. For sure, right. Fact. So it's one of the reasons why it was such a cool spot. Nice people, great food, and uh, letting us puff. I mean, come on, we're in. And so uh, Rob hits me with the bong, he lights it up, and he looks at me, you know, and he says, um, if it don't bubble, it ain't worth the trouble. And that's the first time I had heard that statement. I also watched the hash melt through the screen and drip down the bong stem. And I was just like, what the fuck was that? Basically the nicest hash I'd ever smoked in my life. And so basically that would inspire everything for me. Like that was the start of what, what, like, what was that? I like, what I just, I couldn't, flip my head on it. So I got into hash making after that for several years, I was dry screening and trying to like make hash. I didn't understand the counterintuitive properties of dry sifting. Uh, and it wouldn't be until, you know, some years later, about three years later, in fact, that I would make my first water hash that would actually melt and bubble. And so that was, uh, that was the moment in my mind that I have etched that, um, will I'll never forget. And I'm not sure that restaurant's there anymore, unfortunately, but uh, what a, what a cool just history, you know, Amsterdam, what a trip. Yeah. Amsterdam is an interesting city for sure, man. And I'm sure it has some very interesting nooks and crannies if like you're in the know, you know? So I want to talk about those three years that you mentioned, because you mentioned the melt or the dry sift and I've heard you refer to it as the quote-unquote secret dry sift at the time. So talk to us about the dry sift, which will lead us eventually to Skunkman Sam, I suppose. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, practiced and learned, you know, I was, I was in a position between 95 and 98, 99, let's just say, 
where I had a lot of material to play with. And people would bring me things and hashes that I would see. And I would, I, I had a lot of exposure. And so I would try things and play with screens and, you know, just kind of on a, as a side hobby and um, always trying to get the purity there, but just not until I really, you know, and I can't even really put my finger on it where it was probably around maybe 97, 98 that I started carding, that I realized that the heads and every contaminant would fall through the big screen. But if you landed on a tighter screen and you used a flat card and you gently rolled over those heads, that the heads wouldn't push through the screen, but the stalks and the stems would break into pieces over time and then eventually push through the screen with the force of the card. And so I would do this carding very slowly, like just, and I, I guarantee it was years after 97, 98 that I actually started carding it religiously and getting it to a point. And I, I can't really pinpoint down the time. My photos would probably pinpoint it really well. It's 2003 comes to mind where I first posted full melt dry sift, you know, where the dry sift was bubbling and, and boiling. And I also can't remember the first year that I actually smoked Skunkman Sam's dry sift, which was, of course, something altogether different. Yeah, so I guess I was that was a misconception on my part that I thought that the one that you had smoked at the Thai restaurant was his. And oh, so, it was. It was totally. I just didn't know it at the time. Right. And so, you know, while you're learning to card and, and learning to dry sift, and have access to a bunch of material. Were you able to establish a relationship with Skunk Man? Was he in any way able to, I guess, guide you with dry sift since he obviously has some kind of methodology where, you know, he, he knows how to, to get it clean or pure almost to a 99.9%. Well, my relationship with, with Skunk Man uh, became, uh, you know, solidified when I started my company in 99 and I released my company Fresh Headies with the motto, bubble bags. If it don't bubble, it ain't worth the trouble. And then Skunkman Sam sent me an email with something in the email that I recognized immediately. And he said, hey, uh, do you know who said that? If it don't bubble, it ain't worth the trouble. And that was it. It was very curt. And I was like, Whew. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> I was like, I was equally as tripped out when Owsley Stanley, Bear from like the LSD Grateful Dead days, he also just hit me up out of the blue one day about bubble bags. That's a different story. But so Skunk Man Sam hits me up. I, you know, I know I, he's not saying I'm Skunk Man Sam, but there's something that I'm able to connect because I, I know some things. And so I read him back immediately and I say, I know exactly who said that it was this, you know, AKA Skunk Man Sam. And, uh, I am happy with not using it. I'm happy to pay for it. I'm happy to, you tell me what you want me to do. And, you know, for whatever reason, that was the way the professor wanted to be. That's what he wanted to read. And in, in the way I replied to him, I would be almost certain that if you asked him, that was the moment I decided bubble man was going to be my friend because he did not let a lot of people into his life back then. He was very, 
very tight. And uh, it was a blessing and has always been a blessing. And I say to this day, you know, aside from Ron Hickey uh, and my own father, I've, I've absolutely, you know, feel that, that Sam's been a mentor to me. And uh, I am very, very lucky to have the giants uh, whose shoulders I've stood upon to be these gentlemen. It's uh, worked out in my favor a great deal. Um, we like to celebrate the successes in life, but, you know, we should expose those stories that lead to those successes because that's where the real grime is. And that's where the real, you know, substance is. For sure. And to be honest, that's part of the reason that I ask, you know, just because I do feel all these individuals have their, their place in history and, you know, they're part of uh, a bubble man, I feel like in a way, you know, but, you know, back to, the, the sifting, the carding technique, was that something that you developed on your own? And, you know, I've heard people that sift say that carding and getting it to 99% or 99.9% purity is almost an impossible feat. It's really not. I mean, this is just a level of awareness. I mean, I did it the first day I met John Burfello in Amsterdam and then he, we came back home on a plane together and I invited him over and he brought some dry sift and he showed it to me and he put it down and I, right away I knew it was like farmer's grade at best, right? Like maybe 20% heads in, in like a gram, you'd get 0.2 of a gram of heads, right? And everything else is non-active. And he was so happy and proud with it. And I was just like, all right, you know what? I'm going to do this guy a fucking solid. I'm going to be like, first of all, dude, this is not good sift. And he was like, kind of like, what? I'm like, no, no <laughs> let, me, let me show you. I carted that sift and it was maybe, a, I don't know, it was a couple of grams. I carted it for 40 minutes and I definitely got it to like 99% heads. And we, we melt it in a bowl and we, we pass it back and forth. Actually, it's sitting there. We're just doing like one after another. We put so much in it. And if you've ever watched that video, we burst out laughing at the end of the video. We can't contain ourselves because we're just like, oh my God, cough, cough, laugh, laugh. Uh, and it was spectacular. It absolutely, if you ever have Johnny B on here and you interview him, he'll say that was a defining moment in his life. And it's interesting that I showed him how to clean dry sift before I showed him how to make bubble. Now, doing that with the dry sift and the card, you know, that went on to, I showed D420K and D420K was using iTunes cards and he was kind of like, oh, I think there's like some, some static happening. And he tried, he tried making it work with static. And I think what he did was he wrapped it in parchment and I'm pretty sure it was him, but, but who really stepped it up was Mies. This guy Mies who came out of nowhere and he said, listen, wrap a DVD in parchment. And so that created a much easier way of creating uh, with the static tech that people dubbed it. Uh, and that all happened from, from my carding to Darren wrapping it in parchment to Mies wrapping a DVD in parchment. And when you share information, that's how these things happen. And so it's a super cool method. Um, it allows you to separate heads out. Now, of course, if you really want to get 99.9, you're going to have to car, uh, you're going to have to static tech those same heads probably four or five times. So don't think you're going to, you know, when you're doing the static tech and you're dragging the DVD edge with the parchment over the, the resin, and it's very important when you take that resin that you run it through a sieve. I use a 250 micron sieve. I pour the, the hash into it. I use a brush 
to brush the resin through the sieve so it falls evenly on the 200 LPI, which is lines per inch, mesh is the same. It's counterintuitive to micron, that's 70 microns. And uh, I make sure it falls nice and evenly. And then I can drag that DVD case. You know, the Jungle Boys were doing it with a paint roller. I like to have an edge. I like using something even a bit thicker than a DVD case. But then also on the flip side of things, you know, I know a much more effective, much quicker process that was shared with me by my mentor, Skunkman Sam. And the only thing he asked me was to not share that one thing. And it's funny how much slack the guy takes Because first of all, I have to tell everyone that first of all, if you're really worried about not knowing Skunkman Sam's technique and you really want to earn that technique, why don't you start right now by growing better cannabis? Learn about how to grow better cannabis because only the smallest percentage of cannabis that I've ever seen is is going to react and is going to be made to the degree of what he makes, that purity and quality. What people don't realize is it's not his secret so much that they need to know. It's about the fact that he lived in all the hash producing countries. He collected seeds. He took those seeds. He planted them in mass amounts. He collected genetics from those big grows. He bred those genetics. He can breed whatever he wants. He can breed for flavor. He can breed for cannabinoid content. He can breed for single terpene or multi-terpene. I mean, the guy has capabilities and that is available to everyone. And so why don't you start there? And when you get to this point where you've got, you know, the greatest cannabis resin on the planet, then come talk to us. I'm curious on a couple of things. One, going back to smoking Skunk Man's Sift, I've heard you say that to the day, it's still the best hash that you've possibly had. Does that still hold true? Oh yeah, of course. It'll never be beat. It'll only be potentially an equal one day. But you can't like... I just can't imagine ever beating that. I'm telling you, like I'm telling you. So are you saying that it's a combination of his skill as a grower, his access to genetics that possibly nobody else has access to. And then also in combination, this extra secret to creating this dry sift. Yeah, I'm absolutely saying that the the most important component of it is is all that he did and and does and how he grows and how he gets the plant to express itself. And you know, what I always say to people, look, if you're really worried about like techniques, like there's been a great one released and shared with the world. It's called Bubble Hash. It's water extracted using ice and water. It is spectacular and the nicest, most perfect water hash is is damn near right on point with with Skunkman Sam's full melt dry sift. So I can say that, you know. Would I say anything has surpassed it or even gotten right next to it? That's a hard one, you know, because there's also a narrative that goes with Sam and the mysticism of his character and who he is and the uniqueness of everything that he's done in the industry and it's like it would just be, you know, like he's he's Sam. He's Skunkman Sam. You know, and so he just has, uh, there's a reason for that. It's not all, there's, it's not hype. 
That's the crazy thing. It's there's no hype. Do you think, listen, if that guy was all hype, he'd be on like Instagram and all these other things. That guy's taken up more real estate in more people's brains. And he has literally no social media. If I didn't invite him onto the YouTube channel and be like, dude, you don't have to come on camera. Like blah, 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 blah. Like just facilitate ease. No one would be hearing from him. I agree. I agree. So yeah, that would be amazing to be able to to talk to him and, and hear about all his experiences, man. You know, Marcus, I think this could be a good time for a smoke break or honoring DK, a bong rip. Bong rip. I'm in. Cool. Sounds good. Shout out to the homies Powers Plates, the small batch rosin press company. You can visit them at powersplates.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com or on their Instagram at powersplates. One of the reasons I'm so excited to work with Powers Plates is because they truly bring you the highest grade rosin press on the market. They spare no expenses on their design. Every part that goes into their press is of the highest quality possible. And not only does Powers Plates have the highest grade rosin press on the market, now they have the best looking rosin presses on the market. Adding to their black and gold colors, Powers Plates will be releasing new colors like my favorite, the Gun Barrel, which is this cool like steel blue gray, but they're also doing a small batch release on the design that I'm stoked about, their splatter design, which really reminds me of abstract art, which is pretty cool because even when you're not using the press, it's basically a functional piece of art within the space, no different than a pipe or a rig really. And because they're so excited to share their new look and they're just cool dudes, they're gonna hook up one lucky listener with a Power Splates 4x8 Pro Kit in their new unique splatter design. All you need to do to enter is visit powersplates.com, again, P-O-W-E-R-S plates.com, and on their homepage, there'll be a submission form. Once you fill out the submission form, you're qualified for the giveaway. On Friday, March 19th at 1 p.m. Pacific time, we'll be choosing the lucky winner at random on Instagram Live on the Powers Plates account, which is at Powers Plates, and the Hashish Inn account, which is at the Hashish Inn. That's the Hashish I-N-N. So come check out someone, get lucky. It could be you. And again, visit powersplates.com to enter. And of course, if you're in the market for a rosin press and you want the top of the line press, that can potentially double as a piece of art, visit our homies Powers Plates at powersplates.com and pick up your favorite hash makers, favorite hash makers rosin press. And don't forget to use our exclusive savings code, the letters T-H-I, to save $75 off their 4x8 sets. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. All right, Marcus, now let's go and dive deeper into the bag story that you brought up earlier. So I know you've told this story quite a few times and in part, you kind of told it earlier, but I want to try something a little different. And that's, I want to almost summarize what I believe to understand about how the evolution of processing plant material and water and bubble bags is all kind of connected. So to me, the start, the story really starts with Reinhardt, right? So he creates this machine, the ice cold extractor, but in my opinion, more importantly, he holds his patent, right? So 
talk to me about the patent and talk to me about like the interpretation of the court and the patent and why if he had invented a machine, you guys were still liable as bubble bag companies to that patent. Well, I never lost in court. I made a conscious decision to pay Reinhardt. I'm sure I, I, I'm sure I could have beat him, but that wouldn't have been the right thing to do. So let's start a little earlier than Reinhardt because we go back to Reinhardt's 1997, Skunk Man Sam's 1988 with the High Times advertisement of water, Saudi Sam's water secret. Um, and then there's Neville who told Skunk Man Sam that an unknown American, I would almost guarantee from California, sorry, Texas, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, told him that cannabis resin was dense and sinks in water. So that's the farthest I was able to follow it back doing my research. For me, the minute I could confirm that like Reinhardt did a deal with Mila, Mila had the machine at her house. Eldon and Mark watched the machine work. And between the three of them came up with the concept of the bags, manufactured the bags, named the product and sold them. So, you know, Eldon invented it. Mark manufactured it, created it into a product and named it the isolator bags. Mila sold those bags. And so between that team of people, that's how that was birthed. When I found that out and Mark confirmed and, you know, every, I was like, okay, so like, this is, this man got his machine ripped off and turned into bags. And so I just, you know, it felt like the right thing to do at the time, pay Reinhardt, you know, a, a, a good, you know, a good six figure, you know, number. Um, and, uh, be, 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 be on the right side of history, you know, like have paid for that, have done the right thing. Cause so you have to understand for a decade plus Mila told everyone I was a thief and that I stole the bags from her, which in turn, I found out later, I stole them more from like Eldon and Mark who became close friends. And Mark is my partner. He's my manufacturer. He helped me design and come up with all the screens. He's his, in his own right, a hashish, you know, master and living right. in Kathmandu for so many years. And so, you know, how I met Mark was he emailed me because his business had gone bad and his partner wasn't, they were making bags elsewhere and he was getting screwed out of the business. And he was like, this isn't fair. So he saw me on the internet and he's like, Hey, I'm the original manufacturer for the isolator bags. Come to Amsterdam, meet me. Let's have a meeting. And I went and I met him. He had an apartment in the Lydza Plain. I'll never forget it. And he was wearing all nettle clothes. And I was like, this guy's a super tripper. I stayed in his apartment. It was super cool and awesome. And we made a deal. And, um, you know, we've done really well together. We drive each other nuts, of course, but we've got, we've been loyal to one another. The one thing I wanted to just make sure I did for, for Mark was be loyal to him because he came out of a situation where that wasn't the case. And we've had our ups and downs, but I've never had bags made anywhere else in the world other than with him. And that's my loyalty to him. It's interesting from reading Mila's book and speaking to her and again, I don't want to speak for her, but I feel like there's a discrepancy there between how she remembers that 
you know, because she mentioned being kind of upset at that fact where that manufacturer started producing your bags as well. But it's interesting to hear your side as well and him approaching you. And so, you know, I guess you guys will agree to disagree on that, but I'm glad to get both sides of the story. It's easier for me to say my truth, which is I didn't know who he was. I didn't know his name. I didn't know anything about him. And he was completely disconnected from the group. He contacted me because I was putting myself out there in the world as a bubble bag guy. So he, it, come on, it makes total sense. He's a manufacturer. Now he wasn't looking to double dip. He was just getting screwed. And of course, can you imagine being interviewed and being like, well, I was screwing over my manufacturer and then he went to my competition. It's like, trust me, like so many things worked out like that. Like when, when Skunkman Sam called me one day and said, you got to get on these washing machines. There's, there's one right there. Um, you got to get on these washing machines that Mila's selling. It was the first time she took my name, Bubble. And she created the bubble later. Well, English isn't her first language. And so I came out with the bubble now, full page ads. And I said, why bubble later when you can bubble now? And oh my God, was that a successful um, advertising platform? Like it just really resonated with people. People laughed and they thought it was great. And I crushed sales so hard. Uh, it wasn't even funny. And that's why, you know, it's always been good to, I've always tried to keep like take care of the customer, warranty everything and not let every, when I see people smashing on us on the, on like social media, I hit them up. I'm like, dude, why didn't you just get in touch with me? Oh, I didn't think you'd reply. I'm like, well, bro, I reply to everyone. Like just reach out one day, just say hi. I reply to every single one of my Instagram followers every day. Yeah. Which is wild. Cause you have a massive following and I'm sure quite a active DM box. It's so. enough to make it work. Yeah, I believe that, man, for sure. You know, I thought that thing was really funny, how you kind of flipped the, you know, why bubble later if you can bubble now. And that that was a really good marketing tool. And I mean, to be honest, I feel like a lot of your company has had success because you've been really good at marketing, you know, and in part, like your educational videos, which we haven't even talked about those were sharing with the world how to do this technique, which you've emphasized is not a really difficult thing to learn. It's more like following the steps of something. But at the same time, you know, you were using bubble gear while you were doing it. And so that became kind of ingrained with the idea of making bubble. So I'm curious when you approached Mila and you know, you guys had a disagreement on that day for whatever reason, and you wanted to buy, you know, let's say a thousand units. I think I've heard you say, was that your plan or your marketing strategy to push her bags as a rep in North America? Yeah, exactly. I was not in the mindset of thinking I was going to make my own bags. I don't sew. I don't manufacture. I don't make things. And that's not one of my strengths in any way, shape or form. I don't have connections to that. So I just went out there. I was like, look, I want to, you know, I guess I was just a little too like, yeah, what's up? You know, I was just like kind of coming from the brokering. I knew how to broker things. I knew how to buy a bunch of things and then sell those things. I was really, really good at it. And I thought, why couldn't I just do it with these bags? It wasn't until I came home with my sort of tail between my legs, kind of bummed out and upset that my wife says to me, 
why can't we just make them ourselves? And you have to understand, like, that is so rare for her to just to, to, to do that. It was, and it's why I heard her so vibrantly and loudly and clear. And I was like, of course we have to make our own bags. But what I actually said was, well, how could we do that? And she was like, yeah, give me like a sewing machine and some material, like whatever, what, what are, what is it like screen and nylon and, and, and thread and, and, and a sewing machine. And then I was like, yeah, but then I need a camera and a, di- and a, a, a digital camera and a computer. And so between those things, you know, with about $6,000, we started our company. I've heard you tell that story, but also tell the fact that there were points where you felt hesitant in following through with that, even though you thought it was a great idea because you felt weird about infringing on Mila's bags because at the time you believed that they were coming from her. Oh, dude, I believed it for so long. I, I mean, I can't tell you so much. I mean, I remember when I think it, it was her daughter or daughter-in-law who came to me in Germany one day and she said, I, she said, hey, what's going on? And, she came, and I talked to her and I, we were talking and she's like, so listen, full disclosure, I'm from Mila's camp. I'm her daughter. I can't remember daughter or daughter-in-law, but she said, I just can't listen to the stories anymore. You can't possibly be this, this bad. So I'm coming over to meet you and vibe out on you. And I was like, oh, well, you know, fuck awesome. Like, thanks for coming over. Like, what do you want to know? And I just sort of told her my stories and I think she felt a lot better after, because I'll tell you for years, I was vilified in Amsterdam and like, it was intense sometimes. And it was like, you know, there were people that didn't have relationships with me out of love for her. And when I started writing for magazines, she would call the editors and and be very upset and get very mad at those editors. And so when I got to hear that she's going around making my life more difficult by upsetting other people in my name, I mean, that was hard on me, man. I'm not going to lie. I was, uh, that was definitely hard on me, but I knew how consistent I was going to be. I innovated those bags. I made them better than they ever were. I changed the face of water extraction in the world, no doubt, between Mark Rose and I. And uh, I'm happy to say that for the 10 plus years, she told everyone I didn't know what I was doing because she could do the same thing with two bags. She sells seven and eight bag kits nowadays, and she even has 25 micron bags. She, she claimed 25 micron bags were, was, uh, you know, just to throw away. I produce 25 micron hash in my lab that's 70.4% THC. So... Was that your first innovation to the bag sets is adding the 25U? Oh yeah, that was the number, well, the 45 and the 25. So first we added the 25, which was obviously, it was catching everything from the 45, which is a fairly decent hash depending on the cultivar. So we were seeing like, we couldn't believe it. Like imagine you're selling all these two bag kits and everyone's throwing everything down the drain that's below 70 microns. Now, another reason I don't have a 70 micron bag, just for a short side story, I have a 73 micron bag, and that's because I was born in 1973. Yeah, I've heard you talk about that. And was that purposeful to distinguish yourself from other bag companies since everybody was rolling with the 70, I guess, at the time? There was there was only one other bag company. I was the second in the world, and almost every single one of them after copied our bags to the T, to the colors, to the name, bubble bag dudes, all the same colors, all the same screen sizes, like just, and I have trademarks on all these things. I'm just not the kind of person to enforce it. I'd rather make your product look inferior by making mine better, you know, and that's, we've gotten many a sales from companies 
people who have purchased from wacky willy or bubble bag dude or companies that haven't been willing to at least be smart and copy in the highest caliber of quality. If you're not going to do that, I mean, you're really, I'll tell you, my businessman friend told me the two, you know, the two worst things to do, you know, is to copy a product, make it worse and undercut the price. That's some bullshit. So he was like, if you can make the product better and innovate it for the end user, the customer, then you're doing a service. Uh, And if you make it more expensive, you're also doing a service in the sense that you're not trying to undercut and gain sales from your competition by putting the price lower. So that's also greasy. I took both those to heart and I made a product that was way more expensive than the only other bags on the market, which were the isolator bags. And uh, I stood behind my manufacturer and warranted them for life. And do you believe having mentioned all these other companies and, you know, what you feel is basically an imitation or a knockoff from your design, do you feel that all bags are made equal? Well, I know they're not because the one main thing, this is what I'm talking about is in the quality. And I'm happy for all the companies to exist. I wouldn't want them to disappear. I wouldn't want to get all the bag business. You don't design things to control them. You design them to get out and become better and for more people to do it. I just wish more people had a caliber and a bar that was set much higher. So for me, I use pharmaceutical grade screen that is extremely expensive. It's 20,000 euros per roll. And I need to buy eight rolls to, to start making bags. You don't get to buy ends and stuff of this stuff. It's very expensive. It's heat and, and pressure rated for a certain amount of pressure and a certain amount of heat. So the holes never lose the holes. So there's all sorts of inferior product. This screen is available in like two countries. You can't buy it in China. It's literally maybe three countries, sorry. And uh, so you can't buy it in China. You can buy it in another in one of those three countries and send it to China, but they'll probably just end up doing a switcheroo on you and keep the good screen for themselves. The inexpensive screen loses its hold after multiple exposures to water. Water is the universal solvent. So it breaks those down. Mine are heat and pressure stamped and rated. So when I started, I was like, oh, we should sell these as rosin bags. They're the only rosin bags that are pressure and heat rated. Like all these other people were using like silk and stuff. And it's like, dude, that's not even like, that's not heat rated. Like what's the heat rating on that? Oh, I don't know. I'm just fucking selling it, eh? It's like, well, maybe you should look into like looking at the liabilities of the things that you sell. So we have always gone out of our way. And the the big differentiator for our bags is the screen. It's that simple. You know, I hate to give away the the big secret, but no one's willing to spend that kind. It's like, okay, you want to do a knockoff bubble bag company? Great. 160,000 euros right off the bat to get you through the door just for the eight different color, just for the eight different screens. Now you better have a manufacturer that's able to make sure he doesn't mix up those screens because we heard it so many times from our competition competitors, people that bought those bags and then figured out like, oh man, the 120 bags a 70 bag. So it was like stopping everything after like two or three bags. So, you know, you want to make sure that you have, um, you know, the right screen and you can use a loop to look at your screen and to measure your um, diameters um, or sorry, your, your micron. Yeah. uh, Diameters of the hole. And then what is also important that I would suspect most people don't have a deep understanding of is the ratio of screen to hole. And that incorporates the diameter of the thread. 
and how thick the diameter of the thread is decides what the surface area of the hole is open. And so that's very important. And those I don't give away. I don't tell those to everyone because you know what? Work for it. If you're going to take my bag, send them to the lab, have them, you know, identify these things for you so you can understand what the perfect screen is. But if you guess, you're for sure going to get it wrong because it's not just micron diameter. Brings up an interesting point that I wonder if there's a difference between the material that you use for, I think they're called the light version, and then your, you know, more, I guess, professional bags. We use great screen for those as well. Where I cut the corners on the lights is when I buy the high grade OG warranted for life nylon, I buy it in full bolts. The lights I buy as ends and I get them very cheap and I pass on literally 100% of that savings to the customer. Because everyone wants the bubble bags for the, for the price of the lights. So I had to create the lights so they could hear their own sort of like, well, I want to get the OGs. It's like, well, but the lights are the price that you can afford. Well, can't you just give me a deal? No, I don't have to because I created a set that's in your price range. I don't have to sell you my really expensive good ones that are going to give you a warranty for life for half the price of the product. Like when I give a warranty for life, I, I really want to get the price of the product. And I've, I've also offered a 25% discount for medical patients since the inception of my company. I, I never held back on that. Yeah, and it's always a little weird for me to ask weird questions, but you know, I chimed into a live that you did a while back ago, and this topic kind of was a hot topic at the time. And somebody said, well, it's fair that there's that difference, for example, between maybe the, not necessarily the quality, but the grading of the the nylon between the two bags, but it's not something that's necessarily like disclosed on the item or on the website. And it's almost to be inferred and said due to the price. Would you say right. that's a fair yeah, statement? I remember that actually. See, I don't run the website and I don't keep all this stuff, but I do remember that. And that was in regards to like a percentage of difference for the screen where it was like, oh, the screen could be like a 30 micron instead of a 28. It was like a, a, it might have even been a smaller number because you have to understand when it's 5%, it's 5% of that whole number. So it's not actually five, like from 30, it doesn't go to 25. It probably goes to 29 point something and that's what, or 28 or 27.5 or something. So I remember that discussion. Uh, I think I ended up tracking that down mainly to a hater. Uh, I never actually had people complaining. Like people love the lights. They're warranted up for a year. The price is like, dude, like, Basically, I made them the price of all my competitors that were ripping off my customers with my name and my colors and everything. And then basically the customers would call me and be like, bro, like I thought this guy was you. And I'd feel so bad. I'd be like, okay, well, shit. Like, so I thought, why don't I sell lights to those people? So if they want to get, no one wants to spend the full price. And I'll tell you right now, everyone pays twice that because they buy the lights first and then they buy the originals. And so you end up paying way more than if you would have just gone and bought the originals. Before I had the lights, people were going and buying all these com competitors and they were like, oh, I bought these bags. They fell apart after like three washes. The screens were the wrong size. Like they were doing all this different stuff. I'm like, listen, I'm not going to pretend that I haven't had 
a bag sewn the wrong way in my history, that we haven't had material flake off from some of our nylon. These are things that have plagued us for years. It's why I offer the fucking warranty. It's not because I think we're perfect. It's because if we're not, I don't want the customer to pay for it. I want us to pay for it. So for any of you listening out there that have ever had the one problem that we have had a problem with, especially in the beginning, uh, which is the flaking of the material, you just send a photo. You just, it's very easy. We'll send you a new bag, like no problem. And I hope I didn't duck that question, but that's all I really knew about that. I, I, I kind of honed in on that for a little bit. It was mildly uncomfortable. And then I kind of, and I can't remember exactly who it was, but I, I'm certain we ended up honing in on that weirdness as being some random hater because I, I'm super easy. Like if you feel you got, like I've given people money back when, if they don't like their bags, I'm just like, all right, well, whatever. Cause they're so rare. And it's only people who just really want to like get free bags and get their money back. And I'm like, you know what, if you need that, that bad, then, then maybe, maybe I should be helping you. You know, if that's your hustle. That's funny, man. Um, you know, speaking of trolls, I want to talk a little bit about breeder Steve. What can you tell us? Is Breeder Steve a troll? That's what I heard you say in an interview, at least on the internet. Okay, well, you know, I was probably mad, but what I will say about Breeder <laughs> Steve is I, I was always a good friend to him. I thought that he was a good friend to me, but, you know, fairly, well, not super recent. I think the last text I got from him was he was upset with me because I was friends with Ryan Lee. And I just thought like, what the fuck, like what? Like Ryan Lee, Chimera, like this wonderful human being who's done so much for cannabis. And, you know, so I, the thing, and I won't get into the details, but it was fairly hypocritical, the reasons he didn't want me to be his friend. And I just kind of felt like the last thing I said to him was, I said, I hope you get help with your mental health problems because this isn't you. I've known you for long enough. And he's, you know, there's, there's quite some, quite some people in his life that he's alienated in the last few years. I wasn't the only one. I wish him the best, obviously. Uh, he was always someone who appreciated resin and, and flower. And that's really how I connected with him. Um, you know, I was at his wedding. I helped him move to Switzerland by, by, by loaning him money. I, I've always tried to do right by Steve, but that comment of me saying, ah, he's a troll comes from this energy of him telling me I can't be your friend anymore because you still talk to Chimera. And that's just like, we don't really have time for that in our community. Like we can't, that's kind of a form of bullyism, you know, where you're just like, so it's either, it's you're either with us or you're against us. Like that's like some George Bush Jr. shit. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's funny, Marcus. I was actually referring to like on the forums and stuff. I guess he was one of the introducers of the forums to you. And you didn't know at the time that he was one of the guys trolling on there. He, he was definitely like he loved getting into intense arguments late at night on the Internet. And he told me when he told me to go on Overgrow, he said, I am on. I'm in the shark tank. And I didn't know what that meant, but I went in there for like two minutes and was just like, Oh my God, like this is just like everything I hate about the internet. He bathed in it. But that's in part also where kind of bubble man started taking more seed was through the forums. 
Yeah, I, I was orig- I was in uh, the the photo gallery, which was the popular one where everyone went, and my photography stood out immediately. As did Bushy Older Grower, uh, you know, Gypsy Nirvana. There's kind of like there was a few of us where our photography was like, whoa, and we had quality stuff. So it was kind of like, what the hell? Um, and that started to build. Shebang, who created the website, the the guy who wrote all the code and stuff. He, I became friends with him, and he said, listen, I want to create a hashish forum just for you. And that was the first hashish forum that had ever been created on an online board. And it became a standard in every online board. And I moderated that until Overgrow got shut down by the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, in whatever year that was. So yeah, it was unfortunate that that got shut down. It was an incredible platform. And I do definitely owe that uh, to Steve turning me on to that. And I mean, I owe Steve also turning me on to that shishkaberry trim. You know, I at the same time, I wish him well. I hope he's better. And, uh, you know, don't, don't do that. Let people be friends with who they're friends with, you know, or if, if we're all good people, we should be able to hang out. I think that's some pretty sound advice, Mark. You know, I think this could be a good time for a quick second smoke break. Down with that. Oh man, I'm always down with a smoke break. <laughs> all right, cool. I want to take a moment to thank the people that have made up our community on Patreon throughout the last year, and especially grateful to each person that's currently contributing and allowing us to produce episode 27 with Marcus, aka Bubble Man. I also want to take an additional moment to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Kevin of Lifted and Dina, Kyle the Full Melt Fiend, Dan D. Pesci 44, James the Casual Cultivator. Mario in Illinois, which in the homie Adam from Mission Hill melts a belated happy birthday. Shout out to our good friend Jen Doe 420 now in Maine, David from Totem Solventless in California, Haji in California, Big C in Wisconsin, Manchu Gardens in Denver, the homie Mikey from MTS Gardens, Hash Headies in SoCal, Deal Grows, the boys on the Big Island pressing for show. The good homie Chris, the real cannabis Chris, Terp Wizard in Michigan, Ryan, aka Pickin' Slims in Michigan, Rackham's Whitewater Hash in Oklahoma, Lord Zippers, Sunday Melts, Anthony in Michigan, Joshua in Puerto Rico, Boris from Papa Select, and David from Rosin Evolution. We appreciate every single one of you. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. All right, man, let's hop around. Talk to us about picking up Slinger off the side of the road, going to a fish show at the Gorge. All right, cool. So I've rented a car. I'm trying to get over the border. I've already been shut down so many times. I got shut down from seeing the Grateful Dead like multiple times. I had tickets I had to give away because the border just kept nailing me and not letting me in. And so one day fish was up here. I think this was 98 and I just sort of was like, I'm going to rent a car and I'm going to go over with all the fish heads and I'm going to look so straight and good and clean, especially in this literal wook like caravan. Right. I'm just like like 40 wooks in front of me, 400 behind me and I'm going through and I get waved through. I'm like, Holy shit. So I go and see like, I don't know. I went and saw a couple of shows. I thought, I think I saw like, I thought, I thought I saw Portland and I thought I saw the gorge, but I'd have to look back on the year. And it was definitely 98. 
and I'm driving super type A. I never turn around. I never go back for gas. I never like, if I, if I have to go to the bathroom super bad and I pass a bathroom, I'm waiting for the next one. I don't turn around. And I blow by this kid and he's on the side of the road. He's a total like, like, like lot rat. He's just like a kid, like a fish kid. Like I'm like, there's my people. Like there's my guy. And I drive by and I just kind of feel a weird energy. Like I'm like, I think that guy needs a ride. And, and I'm like, he's standing out in front of, on the wrong side of the road in front of an A&W. And I'm like, I'm dry, I, dry, I blow right by him. And he's not hitchhiking, but I'm like, oh, I think he needs a ride. I started having a dialogue with my mind. And this, is, this was not me. This was me having a dialogue with some other force. And it said, uh, hey, you should go back and get some onion rings. Then you can check to see if that kid's there. And I'm like, first of all, I don't even fucking eat onion rings and I don't go to A&W. So why would I, I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Onion rings, dude. Onion rings would be so good. And I'm like, okay, yeah. Onion rings. I got to get some onion rings. So I turn around and I go back and now he's on the other side of the road hitchhiking. So I like put my window down. I'm like, Hey bro, come over here. He like, reads got a piece of cardboard. He like runs across and all his ripped patchwork clothes. And he's, he's all skinny and pale and he runs over. He's like, Hey dude, you know, he's like, what's up? What's up? And I'm like, well, are you going to the show? Obviously like you head into the gorge. He's like, yeah, dude, fucking car broke down, man. I need a ride. I'm like, bro, you know what? I was just going to A&W to get some onion rings. Why don't you come with me? So I literally took Slinger into A&W, stood in line and bought fucking A&W onion rings. And he gave me a marble. I don't know if that marble's in here or if that marble is somewhere else in my house right now, but he gave me an amazing ohm marble that I wore around my neck for years until it broke. And I still have it now. I just need to get him to fix the piece. And that's, you know, probably never going to happen, but uh, he gives me the marble. We kind of connect, we go back out to the car and then he drops the bomb on me. He's like, Hey, uh, can we give my friends a ride too? And I'm now I'm like, <laughs> fuck, fuck. I'm like, okay. Yeah. 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 Sure. And his friends ended up being Jason Lee and Jason Lee's girlfriend at the time. And they were super nice. And I hung out with them the whole time at the gorge two night run. You know, we ate something. I can't remember what psychedelic we ended up eating, but I had, I tripped out with slinger and we, we puffed and we just like connected in a really great way. And we actually figured out not too long after that, because after I picked him up, he, 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 messaged me or, or phoned me and he said, I think, you know, my roommate. And I said, your roommate. He's like, yeah, Zach. And I'm like, Zach. I'm like, I don't know, Zach. He's like, yeah, he says he met you in 95 on fish tour. And I'm like, bro, I've been to like 20 or 30 fish shows. I'm not like, you know, I'm not, you've been to 300. I, I don't have the numbers. It's not your friend. He's like, no, he said he met you in like Missoula, Montana or something. You're from Winnipeg. And I'm thinking, I'm like, holy shit. I did meet a glass blower named Zach and this other kid named Huck and they had just been busted by the Missoula police and they smashed all their glass. And I was like, bro, follow me. We're going back to Winnipeg. We got glass. We've got this. We're growing hemp. We're doing it up. Like come over, you know, and basically, um, that would have been 95. 
before I moved in 96 and we lost him in a snowstorm. And this is another like brother from another mother. I still talk to Zach. And the weirdest thing about that fact that I met Zach in 95 and didn't hear from him till 98, there's a weird part to the story. I also met Marble Slinger in 95. We just didn't know it. And I filmed our encounter at the Cannabis Cup while we were looking at the top floor of the PAX party house at a cloner. And he was next to me and he's like, Hey, how's it going? Like, my name's Aaron. And I'm from Ithaca. And I just got out of university. I just finished going to the university of Ithaca. I took film and I'm going to, you know, be a filmmaker. And he started telling me all this shit. It was like before he was blowing glass and we tripped out that I met both Slinger and Zach within months of one another in 95. And then I met them again in 98 within months of one another without having seen or talked to them for the three years in between. And there was a third guy named Smiley Steve, who I also met in Amsterdam in 95 in the same like one to two month period and didn't see again till 1998 when I saw him, Slinger and Zach all independently of one another three years later within two months. Yeah, that's really wild, man. That's the coincidence. So in the meanwhile, or maybe a little later is when they make the degenerate art documentary. Right. And I believe at some point you had a gallery, right? Well, you know what? And it's, it's funny because Slinger and I were really close, like maybe too close for too long. And it, you know, he was vibing out and he needed to get back onto that East coast uh, mentality. And I don't know how he would tell the story, but for me, we had a bit of a falling out. You know, he was like, he came to me, he was like, bro, I want to do a documentary. And I was just like, man, I, I can't fund this right now. I just had been dropping hundreds of thousands of dollars into my gallery. Um, it was all kind of falling apart. My dad ended up dying on this motorcycle accident with his wife on a motorcycle that I had bought him. And it kind of just collapsed for me. And I was probably grumpy and not very nice. And I just, you know, we, we, I pushed him away. He pushed me away. So when he did that documentary, he made sure I wasn't in it. He made sure that our show that we threw together, which was the inspiration for the documentary, which we called Degenerate Art, And that was at my gallery in 2004. And then we did it the next year and we did regenerate art. And it was obviously all slinger. I just, I mean, I supplied money. I supplied the gallery, the space and sort of some of the administration background, but slinger brought all the glass blowers. He put all the artists together. He curated that whole show. I mean, it was really, it was really me just helping him do his thing. So when he came out with the documentary and I wasn't anywhere to be seen in it, it hurt a little, but at the same time, it was kind of like, you know what? That's not you. That's not your thing. You know, let him have it. It's his thing. And he, he fucking did an amazing job on that documentary. I watched it five or six times. I was super proud of him. And uh, I think it really propelled him into the artist that he is today. Yeah, I was just recently watching it myself for the first time, funny enough, and it's great, you know, so that's pretty cool. I I had no idea about all that kind of backstory to it. And, you know, I've heard you say that obviously like glass and hash go together hand in hand and you were in contact, obviously, with a lot of glass makers and probably even more beyond the ones that you've mentioned. And so... I want to talk about kind of like the evolution of cannabis concentrates 
also in relation to, you know, how they're being consumed. So what's kind of the earliest you can think of outside of, for example, acharas that cannabis started getting concentrated? Well, I mean, my friends in the, in the Kootenays, the Holy Smokes guys, uh, they had invented a contraption years ago called the mayor. They were smoking red honey oil that they were making themselves. And the mayor was like a spoon bent over a blowtorch with a glass bell over top of that that went and filtered through a bong. And this must have been the early 90s. So they were crushing it out of the park, dabbing way before Hashmaster Cut created the swing and like, you know, just doing it already for years and years and years before it became a thing. And so I actually turned through those guys. I turned Breeder Steve onto that and he was a fiend with that stuff. He would have the torch and the oil and the honey oil and he just absolutely loved it. It was really strong. Not too many people had access to it. Uh, but it annihilated people. It absolutely like the hot spoon. And it was just like terrible in that, in that sense. So obviously eventually that turned into, you know, the hash master cuts, titanium swing, uh, and then titanium nails and then quartz nails. But uh, we, we were, you know, dabbing in the early to mid nineties for sure on things like uh, honey oil and cherry oil. Then BHO kind of comes on the scene, like in the late nineties. Yeah, Indra released BHO on Eroid.org in, oh, I want to say it was a few months after. So if I was March, it must have been April or May when he released it. Because I came out in March and I remember, you know, I had no competition when it came to bags, but that BHO was major. Like my company probably would have exploded a hundredfold had he not released that technique. And then, of course, you know, karmically wise, he's, I'm sure he wished he never did because so many kids blew themselves up, burnt themselves beyond recognition, burned homes down, and people actually died from that stuff. So it was, uh, you know, and we haven't even been able to measure the contaminated, you know, the mercapatines, the ethyl mercapatines that are actually in the oil that accumulate in the human body like mercury and affect the central nervous system and, and, and don't purge out of the body. You know, that is a hard thing to measure what the cost of that was, but we can measure the lives that were lost in fires and the kids that blew themselves up and burned themselves very badly. Those things are quite easily measurable. So it was an unfortunate thing. I think he did it innocently enough. But uh, I know from talking to the man that he has guilt about it for sure. I'm very glad to be on the side that I sit on where I just showed people how to make hash with water and ice. And although I got caught up in my Mila drama and I got caught up in Reinhardt Delp drama uh, and I got caught up in other dramas, you know, I'm, I manifest and create my own dramas because I learn from my mistakes and I try to better my mistakes. But I'm not ashamed of my mistakes. They are what defines me and they are, they are what defines my success. So I'm just going to keep making them. And I hope that we can live in a society uh, where people are allowed to make mistakes, give them a little reprimand sometimes, but uh, always forgive. Yeah. You know, and that's one thing I've kind of heard in this conversation in different ways is that it seems that although you've gained a lot of recognition and notoriety in these past 20 plus years as bubble man, you know, that comes with its price as well. And you've spoke a little bit about how you've dealt with that, but overall, 
you know, how does that make you feel on a personal level as a person, as Marcus? The dramas, you mean? The drama, the haters, the criticism, the harshness. I always try to just accept that I'm somehow manifesting it. I, I, I've, I've learned over the years that I don't have to share my platform with haters. So I am very strict in the sense like you can get banned off my channels very easily. Like I don't have, I have kind of a small tolerance for racism and bigotry and prejudice and sexism and just sort of all the common sense things that your grandma would kind of smack you on the back of the head. If you were, if you were doing, I have a very small patience for that. I do try to engage in conversation, but when I notice that it's not going anywhere and the person's potentially trying to catch me in a hook, I just end it. And, and sometimes I know that's not the right thing to do. I have learned from it over the years because I'm very sort of hot headed and quick and reactionary. Um, so in the early days, I would just be like, and then I get myself into troubles and I'd be like, oh, the one person you like blow up on is the one person who will spend 10 years doing everything in their power to destroy you. And I have manifested a few of those uh, in my time. And I don't, I don't pretend to think that that's not me doing that. Like it has to be me manifesting that. So, you know, those people are just playing their part in their own manifestations. Somehow they're connecting. I don't really... I can't really blame anyone. I just, I mean, anyone that knows me, anyone that's watched Hash Church can know certain people I can maintain in my life for, for decades and decades and others I fall out with, you know, like when, when Todd McCormick asked me to kick Indra off the show and just, he's like, that guy's a liar. I don't want him on the show anymore. I said, man, I can't do that. Like I like Indra. I'm not, you know, and I had a falling out with Indra months later after Todd left and then Indra also left the show. So I don't know how I manifest these experiences. I hope to do better. I hope to make up with the people that I've had the fallings out with, uh, uh, falling outs with. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, you can't keep everyone happy in life. And sometimes, uh, sometimes energies are non-congruent and they just don't flow in the same state. And so that's okay as well. Uh, as long as we can forgive uh, and, and move on, I, I feel pretty good about, uh, you know, how things are, are continuing. Yeah, man, I appreciate you sharing that with us. You know, switching gears a little, let's talk about trichomes. I know you know a lot about them. So give us a breakdown about what you know. And obviously that could be a whole podcast in itself, but, you know, give us a rundown on what you've learned about trichomes in your 20 years. Sure. It started with just finding out what they were called. So, you know, figuring that out was kind of a big, big challenge. Obviously, Rob, uh, Robert Cornell Clark's book and Skunkman Sam, who helped greatly with that book, uh, Hashish, is where everyone should start. And so that taught me an enormous amount. Doing macro photography taught me an enormous amount. So learning first that there were different types of trichomes. First, really... 1995, I go to the Cannabis Cup, I meet Joop Dumas. He's a Dutch man who uh, rented a electron scan microscope, I believe in the late 80s, and took pictures of cannabis. And he had the most spectacular, big golden trichome shots, like crazy gnarly shit that didn't exist. And I bought a bunch of the postcards and I was like, what is this? Like, this is a trichome. Everyone was calling it a trichrome. 
no one knew that it was a trichome except when Rob wrote the book and was like, it's a trichome, not a trichrome. So I probably said it incorrectly for years. I'm sure I did just like everyone else. Um, started photographing them and learning there were different heights and different types and different sizes. And I learned that there were some that were glandular and that some that were not glandular. And I learned that the small one that sat on a single stipe cell was called a bulbous. And I learned that this, the taller one that had a stalk was called a capitate cecil. And that the tallest one that had the longest stalk was called a, a capitate stalked. And so there were these three different types of trichomes that I would learn about. And I would learn that the bulbous wasn't good for mechanical screen separation, but the two uh, stalked, uh, capitate stalked and capitate sessile were because of the way they were plugged into the stalk and the way they released and broke off in the ice and water mixture. And so I learned that there were trichomes present on the plant that were there for different purposes. There were systolith hairs that were present all over the plant that were non-glandular. There were glands that came off of the um, first set of true leaves. So after the cotyledon opens up, you get what is called the epicotyl, which is the true set of leaves that are now serrated and they are uh, covered in trichomes if you have some good genetics. So as those came out, I noticed they were, they were like wet tissue paper. If you touch them, they would just like disintegrate. You could, they were so delicate. They were the most delicate thing you could imagine. And they were connected when they started coming out. And eventually the tips would turn white and they would split. And then those leaves would do this. And on the outside of those leaves were these trichomes and if anyone wants to go check out bubblemanbrand.com and you go under the menu to photography, there's pictures of these, all macro pictures in a row that will show you this very same thing. And so here was another type of glandular trichome, sorry, non-glandular trichome, but a trichome nonetheless, that its, its whole purpose was to keep that wet tissue paper epicotyl from touching and leaning onto the cotyledon because as it grew, it would pull and stretch. So these little arms push the leaf, the leaf off so it can grow straight up as a dominant shoot. And so I learned that, you know, inside the trichome, there was a science going on that in that big ball, there were these things called organelles. And there were two types of organelles. There was a vacuole and there was a, um, oh, what was the other one? Plastid. So the plastid produces phenols, which are alcohols, and the vacuole produced hydrocarbons, terpenes, which were hydrocarbons. So alcohol, phenols, hydrocarbon, terpenes are the building block that push up into the upper fibrous mat of inside the trichome. And with UVB light cooking down and your frequency of light, you're going to start producing CBGA, the first cannabinoid that is produced out of all of them. And from that stems the entire terpene profile and the entire cannabinoid profile. At least that's what science says today. That's the most updated science that I have on it. And, uh, it's uh, exciting to realize one day we'll learn even more about this amazing plant and the resins that it secretes. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. And what does the size of a trichome tell us? Well, you know, I haven't gotten to the point where I'm, you know, and even with shale being able to, which I really am impressed, I always wanted to build a frame that showed me the micron size of my trichomes, uh, even though I could run them through my bags and then collect them and kind of have a pretty good idea what the range was of those heads. Um, I think size, you know, does and doesn't matter. 
Uh, I know that when the Mullumbimby Madness is flowered outdoors in Australia for 25 weeks, it produces 25 micron gland heads that are full melt and are just the most spectacular, beautiful experience that you could ever imagine. On the flip side of that, I've had like incredible, crazy indoor grown to perfection, you know, like huge giant heads, 160, 190 that just melted into a liquid. So I just think that, um, you know, I don't know enough personally. I've always felt like, you know, kind of that, you know, the biggest range was never my favorite. I was never, 120 wasn't generally what I loved the most. It happens the odd time, but in a generalization, I would say 90 and 73 is the range that I like hitting for North American cultivars grown the way people in North America grow. Yeah. And in the case of the 25U in Australia, because it's always been a very interesting point that you've brought up, is it the same type of trichome as the North American genetics grown in North America are producing in say the 70 to 120 range? Yeah, exactly. The profile may very well be that, but you've got, you know, this, you've got this excessive heat, like 35 to 40 degrees Celsius temperatures for the summer that the plant is just cooking in. It's amazing. There's terpenes in it at all at the end of the, of, you know, people are like, oh, you can't bring heat into the picture or the terpenes will volatize. It's like, yeah, but somehow when you grow things close to the equator, the terpenes volatize at a rate that they replace themselves with at least equally or greater than. So at the end of the, of the cultivar's life in Jamaica or Australia, like you get these super terp rich full melt resins that, uh, you know, range from 25 to 90 micron. This brings me to an interesting question is after all this experience and, and being like the hash dude, what do you define hashish as? Hashish is micro-encapsulated glands. Uh, those glands can be pressed and, and all encapsulated, but what they aren't is isolated uh, with like solvents or CO2 or heat. It is extruded through and you're leaving that fibrous mat and that, you know, trichome membrane behind, you know, the laboratory. For me, the hashish has the laboratory in it. And it's the difference when I smoke rosin from a six-star bubble or even a five-star bubble. Uh, I find the six-star bubble to be a more enjoyable experience almost each and every time. I would also say that most people aren't pressing six-star bubble. So most people's rosin is from mediocre bubble. It's bubble that didn't melt in bubble that they wanted to make dabable. So they're, you know, they've made rosin out of it because now it's an oil, but it's not the same as like making, like growing perfect resin, making water hash and having that melt and liquefy in that micro encapsulated gland. So I'm kind of from the school of, of Rob and, and Sam where hash is hash. You know, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the whole deal. It's the wax membrane. It's the fibrous mat. It's all of the cannabinoid and terpene profile. And I, I don't think rosin is hash. I don't think hash rosin is hash. I think it's hash oil. And so really the only two ways to achieve hash or hashish is through dry sifting or through water hash, as far as I'm concerned. 
you could finger rub it if you really wanted to. You could collect it off of, of gloves as well. That would be full trichomes as well. You wouldn't have winterized or filtered out waxes and lipids and anything like that. Like it's all going to be there. And so, you know, I get the oil guys that are pulling just these insane amounts. They're using a particular polarity or nonpolar solvent. They're pulling an insane amount of these fats and waxes and lipids uh, and they need to get rid of them. And I don't blame them whatsoever. But when you grow cannabis resin to perfection, um, I'm happy with the little bit that's present in my hash. And do you still have a preference of dry sift over bubble hash? No, I love them both. In fact, when they're both tens, they're 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 both all, almost really equal. The best water hash is damn near the equal to uh, to the best dry sift. You know, you got to be getting into a serious high level of uh, capability and awareness to distinguish the minor differences when you get to that high of a level. Yeah, and so talk to me about the differences between resin from dry material versus resin from fresh or fresh frozen material? Well, you know, fresh frozen got created for sure to create what I have dubbed faux melt more than anything. Now it leached into this new generation of people that want to consume all of the monoterpenes, all of the caustic, rough, gnarly terps that we used to cure out of our flour. Now everyone suddenly wants to preserve it and get it into their hash. So when they take a dab, they're just, you know, they're coughing. You have to cough when those monoterps grab you like that. And, uh, you know, we took it even to a next level where we started dipping into terpenes. So, you know, that was kind of even uh, a next level. But for me, the best material, if it's grown to perfection, I can take that dry, dry material, run it through my bags and create a six-star hash. You know, what most people wanted to do over these years is they wanted, they said, how do I get my hash to melt like yours? Mine's like sand and it won't stick together. And of course they don't want to hear the answer, which is grow better weed. Um, nobody wants to just listen to that and be like, wow, that guy just gave me gold. He just told me to grow better weed. Instead they're like, bubble man's a dick. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm telling you, you need to grow better weed. This is literally a sign that's tell you've manifested this sign into your life. And what it's telling you is you got to grow better weed. And now you're going to ignore it. No, I don't got to grow better weed. You know what? I'll just butane this shit and it'll look like honey oil and it'll be the best. No, it won't. I promise you. That's not how it happens. If you want the best butane oil, make some bomber dry sift or some bomber like 90 micron and make BHO out of that and get back to me. Because trust me, making BHO where you're pulling 30% bulbous heads, those bulbous heads aren't the most enjoyable. And I'm certain it's where the majority of the fats and waxes and lipids come from because we leave them behind in the water and uh, mechanical screen separation processes. So you do feel that retaining that kind of, I think you've called it uh, laboratory and maybe even you just said a little while of the trichome produces a different effect for you. Well, for everyone that I know, because I give my hash rosin to people and then I smoke my bubble hash with people. And they're like, it's, ve it's very few people who will say they like the rosin more. Rosin's amazing. It's awesome. But I don't know anyone that has six-star bubble that prefers to smoke rosin, even from their six-star bubble. I'm sure they exist. I just don't know them. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they certainly do exist. But, you know, it's a it's a changing trend. It's like, it's like everything. And I think uh, full melt will also kind of have a, a revival and maybe that's starting a little bit now and 
also maybe dry sift, but you know, the thing about dry sift I always hear about is it, how scalable is it? Well, it's the same with full melt bubble though, right? And how scalable is that? It's like, well, if you grow great weed, it's fairly scalable. If you don't, it's not so scalable. It's all connected to the weed and the bubble will have a re-emergence, as you said, when people grow better weed. The minute people start growing exceptional weed and throwing it into bags, they'll, they'll see. It's an instantaneous thing. And so right now, We've got a community of people that are doing that, but our community, the cannabis community, has now been opened arms to the rest of the world. So we have an accelerated amount of people, so many people coming into the community now, and and they don't necessarily um, know. Yeah, and you've spoken about community and how it's kind of changing or shifting in meaning of what it used to mean to you. Would you speak on that? Yeah. I mean, I love it. I love, you know, prohibition was cool. It was like a private club. It was like, you know, no one was kept out, but if you didn't have big balls to, you know, put yourself at adverse risk, then you couldn't really reap the benefits of it. And, you know, that's why, from my perspective, that's why I saw back in the day, not a lot of women were in the industry. It certainly wasn't because we were actively involved in keeping women from entering the industry. Women were more like nurturers, carers, and they were kind of like, yeah, I'm not like, putting my freedom at risk. Like, are you insane? It's like, yeah, yeah, I am completely insane. So I'm going to do that. So you do what you're doing. I'll do what I'm doing. And eventually we'll be able to come to a place. I'm first of all, so extremely happy that we have an incredible, we've always had some great women in the industry, but now it's like, we need some major women stewards uh, in this community and in, in this industry. So I've been very happy to just see the diversity that's coming to the community and the fact that it's not just all male anymore. Cause I did many a cannabis cups where it was, uh, you know, just massive sausage parties around the table, <laughs> 20 dudes and they're all good dudes, but it's like, you know, women energy is important and good. And, uh, we tend to, uh, you know, we, we tend to do better when women are around, in my opinion. I've been married for 31 years, so I'm, uh, I'm committed deeply to my woman. Yeah, men have a lot of ego a lot of times, man. And a room full of a bunch of ego is kind of a hard thing sometimes. And I think women help tone that down. And, you know, I, I try to keep a pretty diverse group of people coming on the show. And I try to include uh, females. But like you said, there's there's still not many of them more to come and it'll be nice to see as more join, you know? Totally, man. No, I hear you. What I find most interesting about water hash or I guess dry sifting as well is that it seems to be the first time in history that cannabis resin has been separated by size, whether that's equated to maturity or ripeness or whatever it may be. It's the first time that anybody's separated these tiny little glands by the different types. And so it's almost like each cultivar, every time it's grown, has all these subcultivars or these slivers of these profiles that make up the totality of this thing. Yeah, totally. In fact, it, it goes back to Reinhardt also. was <laughs> He was always like, this kid doesn't know what he's doing. Like, you don't do it like that. Reinhardt's machine isolated resin by maturity. And so the resin would fall as those heads that were the most mature and able to fall fell off. Those would fall first into the funnel 
and he had a little valve that he would open and you could see the differences of the colors in the valve, in the, in the little release, in the funnel. And so he'd be like, yeah, you can open the valve, release the hash. And that's the first shot. And then you can, I was like, no, I do it totally different, man. I'm doing it with like bags. I'm isolating. And, you know, Mila was isolating everything into one screen, but that wasn't isolating the glands. It wasn't until bubble bags came around and we started breaking down the sizes and we added a 25 micron. Well, it wasn't long after that we threw a 45 in and it wasn't long after that we, I threw a 160 under and then a 190. And then we ended up with a, you know, a 90 micron. So we, we, we went, we were doing the R and D, we were doing the work, we were making sure that we weren't just guessing. And, you know, Mark Rose has a lot to do with that as well. He was a big part of that. And uh, yeah, you're right. It's not something too many people mention very often, but that is 100% something that um, bubble bags birthed on a, you know, a global level. Yeah, and can you talk to me a little bit about your R&D process and how you came to the conclusion of what sizes outside of the 73, 45, and 25 that already were part of the kit? Well, running the screens, right? Getting prototype screens from my manufacturer, any screen size that I want, basically, and then prototyping them. And he was doing the same thing over there. So he'd sometimes be like, hey, I think we got to put a 160 in. I, I've noticed a real difference in the 120. I'm like, great, like send me some, I'll play with them. If I confirm it and then we're both on the same page, we'll do it. And so that's basically how that played out more than more than a few times. And are you a believer that there's any trichome range that's superior to another? I mean, it always seems to be there's a favorite. If I make 10 different, if I had a 10 bag kit and made 10 different piles and I left them all on a table, invited five heavy smokers over, I guarantee you one would be gone before all the rest. And I would guarantee you that would be the one that all five of us considered the best because that's called, that's how you get a people's choice award. They've been doing that at Shivaratri for, for a long time in India and, and, and Kathmandu in Nepal, where you just put out all the hashes and the one that gets smoked the first this is the one, you know, everyone liked it the most. And that's kind of what inspired your events, uh, yeah, Legends absolutely. of Hash, right? Yeah, it was part of it for sure. And li I like the idea of that. So I would do a People's Choice Award like that, where I would put some out on a table and pay attention, you know, and when the, when, when the, when the one was gone first, I'd be like, all right, so that's our People's Choice Award. This is the one you guys, just from a visual you know, grabbed the most of, and then after smoking, it came back and grabbed all of it. And do you remember who was the winner of the first? I'm not even sure if there was a winner, but it would have been JJ uh, in Amsterdam. If there was, he used to always crush it out with his dry sift, like nobody's business. You know, for me, I never wanted the legends of hash to be a competition. That was sort of more Sam's thing that he liked and, you know, being my mentor and a good friend and I respected him. I was like, you know what, you're a part of this too. This is our party. So yeah, let's do that. But I always wanted to make it non like promotional, non like, anything like that. So it was kind of like, yeah, you'd get a shirt. Sometimes you'd get a hat, but you weren't allowed to take pictures. You weren't allowed to post on social media. And we just kind of wanted to keep it private that way because, because nothing else is. And the minute you break that integrity and you start going down the marketing uh, pathway, it's uh, it gets dirty. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, man, I appreciate you hanging out. I'll start winding this down. I know we've spent a good time uh, a good amount of time talking. 
you know, I want to talk about bubble man. I want to talk about creating a persona that you didn't really think would stick and definitely not stick for 20 years. I've heard you say so over these 20 years has bubble man influenced Marcus has Marcus influenced bubble man. At what point does one end and is there like a difference between them? Yeah, you know, I think I started Bubble Man because to protect, so not to expose my family, to protect, you know, not to put my name out there. That's what everyone was doing on on these platforms, Overgrow and Cannabis World and whatnot. And so I always sort of, my family always appreciated that as my kids got older and my wife was always like, yeah, we don't really need to be a part. I always told them, I said, you know, if you guys were a part of this, it would be, it could be neat, but it's it never played out like that. My family has always been separate, so I created bubble man to be the guy who doesn't have the family kind of thing. And is just out there in the world, even though I adopted and released these little bits of myself, Marcus under the bubble man brand, they're definitely one and the same person. They started out very separate, you know, the same way I had to do with my credit card processing, the same way I had to do with my websites, um, you know, all of these things. So yeah, they started out separates. They're getting closer and closer and closer now. Um, you know, I don't think they're too bothered by the bubble man persona. I think they know it's brought them a pretty decent life and, um, yeah, it is what it is. You know, I just, uh, I would have liked to have made them more a part of it. Uh, you know, my wife in particular, who was a big reason why bubble bags exist, people are always blowing smoke up my ass, but she doesn't get any of that. And so I'm always trying to let her know, like, no, you're a huge, (laughs) the main reason this is happening. Like you're the person that said, like, let's make our own. And that's why we're making our own. And so I always want to give her the props for that. I never used to talk about that much uh, either because I think she was uncomfortable with it. But now we're getting, you know, more into this sort of the future is becoming the present. Yeah, it's an interesting time to talk, man. And I appreciate you being so candid with me, to be honest, you know, again, in the most respectful way. But in when you typically do these interviews, if the character and Marcus have grown to be almost one, do you get one or the other or do you get both? No, you always get both because the one thing I can't do is like act. I'm not an actor. I am who I am. That's why when you got on, you were like, oh, this is like seems familiar. It's like, yeah, because you know me from my videos. That's who I am. And if you met me somewhere else, you'd be like, oh, wow, he's just like he is in the videos. It's like, yeah. I don't know how to be anyone else. I'm not like a professional actor. You know? <laughs> I only know how to be me. It's the easiest thing I have. And because I'm putting so much out there that everyone's going to jump on me for if I say the wrong thing, if I do the wrong thing, if I make a mistake with my words. So I just, you know, I have to be, I have to be ready for all of that. I have to be myself. So yeah, no, I'm uh, you're definitely, it's one in the same. It's just sometimes you'll get, you know, like certain things that you ask me that that are really Marcus Richardson things, some of those things just won't get shared. Whereas, you know, Bubble Man things, he's a public persona and I share all things Bubble Man. Yeah, no, that's cool. That makes sense. And, you know, one of the things that I don't feel gets talked about enough about your tutorials is one of the things that kind of came together to to allow it to happen was that you were able to do these processes on camera without 
any kind of legal repercussion. So can you talk to me about how you had achieved like that medical status? That was all Johnny B. Johnny B, after I showed him how to, this is how life works. When you share your energy and you give some, something to someone that's so, so important, they turn around and they share their energy. So he knew that I had all these accidents. He, know that, he knew that I had broken like 16 bones and I had inflammation. Johnny's inflammation comes from broken bones. He was like, dude, I'm taking you to my doctor. His doctor, who he spent the last three years educating and giving documents to and sharing uh, studies, he turned his doctor on really in a big way. So I went and saw this pain specialist. He was like, oh, yeah, man, absolutely. You're a perfect candidate for a, a cannabis license. So John showed me how to apply for it. And uh, yeah, I got it like probably eight months later or something after applying and got a, yeah, I got a medical license, an MMAR, grandfathered in. And uh, yeah, I can grow 98 plants and it's unbelievable and incredible. And John Burfello was 100% responsible for all that. It felt like it was out of touch. It, it was just not doable. Like, how do you do it? Like, you know, when people were like, oh, I'll show you for $5,000. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. But John was just like, no, bro, I got you, bro. Come on, let's just do this. Drives me down there, comes into the doctor's appointment with me, like with a big binder full of educational information. And so, yeah, shout out to Johnny Berfella. He did that. Yeah, that's cool. And then that in combination with like the timing of something like YouTube taking off and you combining all these ideas and then executing them, um, you know, really, I think made you the face of hash or, you know, the bubble man or the guy that everyone knows now. Yeah, definitely created a sort of a, a voice of authority when I share this information, you know, and, and, and regardless of even some of the people that don't want to acknowledge it, like we all play our parts. For me, I'm most excited about the young generation up and coming. That's why I listen to your podcast. That's why I try to follow them all and ask them like, who else should I be following? Keep my finger on the pulse and make sure I support and help facilitate those guys doing what they're doing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I run facilities, so I want great hash makers in the world and I want to get them into my facility and, and get working with them. So it's an amazing thing to have cultivated so many hash makers in my career that now so many of them are consultants and operating businesses with this information that, uh, that I was sharing. And how does that make you feel on a personal level? It makes me feel great to be a part of it. I mean, it's the same thing that I was able to get this information from people that shared with me. So I'm just a, like, a, like a, a step in the ladder as now they get to be as well if they make the right choices. You know, talking about now you, you brought up the lab. I know you've been working in the lab. I know you've been doing a tour of a bunch of, I'm not sure if they're dispensaries or what they're called in Canada, but tell us a little bit about your project with Embark and some of the other companies you're working with. Sure. Yeah. Well, Embark is, you know, the, one of the, uh, a major part of my life these days. It's a company I founded with my two partners, Michael Curtis and uh, Bruce Dawson Scully. Um, it is an extraction facility. We are right now solventless, but we'll eventually get CO2 going and maybe some post-production, you know, distillates and isolates and monomoleculars, terpenes extractions, probably hydrocarbons and ethanol and all of that stuff. That's Mike West's side of this of the facility. I'm really strictly um, water extraction and um, dry sift and rosin. 
And so it's been amazing. We got uh, licensed, I guess, oh, about a year ago. And then, you know, within just a couple of months, we've gotten our sales license. So in well under a year, we our sales amendment. So which means when you get a license initially, you're allowed to extract, but you're only allowed to sell at a discount to B2B. Other businesses that have sales licenses, they can put that product up for sale, package it and actually get the margin that you kind of wanted to get. That's the reason you were making the hash in the first place. You lose all that in your B2B. Um, so we got our sales amendment. Now we're getting provinces ordering product Uh, And that's a whole trip in itself, Uh, you know, very, very cool thing to be a part of. Um, We found some great material. We've been making kilos and kilos of beautiful bubble. Um, Six star, no, definitely not. Um, Five star, I'm hoping. Uh, I haven't been able to do the final melt test, but I did take some and press it between parchment and it turned into gold leaf really beautiful, like almost see-through. So the product is very lovely. Um, it's kind of like I have to, I'm so, I'm always ahead of my time. So I would have loved to have released Bubble Man brand, Six Star, Micron, you know, Micron specific. That's in the future. We're still a, a ways away from that, but being able to even do like an A-grade blend with like 73, 90, 120 and, and some really nice 45. I can get behind that, you know, almost a 70% THC range. Um, always looking for higher terpene ranges, you know, love to get into the 10% range. This particular stuff is just under four. So we're, there's room for movement. But if you saw what I was competing with, which was actually out on the market right now, Dude, it pains me to see people taking my name, Bubble Hash, and putting it on product like that and taking my term like full melt, you know, that Skunk Man Sam and I came up with together, taking our term and putting it on their half melt subpar hash and selling it. I'll tell you, that was hard to see. So amazing to be able to tour around to all these stores. I visited, I'm sure, close to 100 uh, in the Okanagan. So I went to Penticton, Kelowna, Oliver, Vernon. I was on Vancouver Island. I was in Vancouver. I was visiting all these shops, talking to the the frontliners, the people who work at those shops selling product, asking them who's coming in, looking for hash. What's your hash sales like? What do people know about hash? You know, it's very young. Everyone's like, oh, mostly old guys coming in for gummy black Afghani hash. So a lot of education is going to be needed. A lot of sort of like flipping the script and showing them where the bar can be set. So I've got to start all that work over again. But I feel pretty proud with the hash that we've made. We've made a good chunk of it. It's Afghan Kush. Uh, It's going to be sold under the Hank Co brand, which is a brand that our company just kind of created to put out. There's massive limitations here. Not allowed to have celebrity sponsorship, which I unfortunately fall into. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of rules and regulations that make it very difficult. But at the same time, we're still able to process hash, you know, get it all made to perfection and then, you know, put it into jars, package it and sell it. So I'm excited. I'm a little scared at the same time, you know, to put it all out there. It's not, you know, my six star full melt, but it's also not under my brand, but it's hash that I'm going to go buy a gram of when it goes up for sale uh, and dab some in my banger and I'll do a a review on it and I'll show, you know, the amount of chaz that's left in it for that matter and, and star it out for my audience and let them know honestly, oh, you know what? We thought it was a five. Maybe it was a four. You know, oh, we thought it was a four. Actually, it's a 5.5. We had no idea. So because I haven't been able to test it and I have a 
I have some integrity. I don't want to tell people that it's full melt. I don't want to put that term on it. So I kept that term off. We called it bubble hash uh, and it's going to be out to all of these stores here. British Columbia put in an order. Um, I think we're getting an order ready for Alberta and then we're working on a couple of the other provinces. So imagine as a hash maker, I don't get stores calling me up. I get a province, like a state. I sell massive cases to the state and then the state distributes them out to the shops. So that's how it works in Canada. It's like the BCLCBD, the people who run the liquor, they run the cannabis as well. So they intake it all, put a little piece on, which is fairly substantial, their little profit, and then they sell it out to all the stores. So um, it's super exciting to be a part of. It's not like what I would say is the most ideal, perfect situation. Um, but like I said, it's not the pedestal, it's the journey. And, and, and we're in the grime right now, tracking through the shit, trying to get to where we want to get. So I suspect some of that will get, you know, the optics will be, will be attacked in social media in some aspect. But for me, I'm happy to be in it right now. I'm happy to be pushing this to the point where I can produce six star bubble micron specific, sell it under my own brand. And if I got to wait a couple more years uh, for that, fine. In the meantime, we got micro and craft growers coming on point here in Canada, accelerating that every day, smaller growers that we can get smaller batches from. Unfortunately, those batches don't get sold to the provinces because if the province orders 10 kilos of hash and they sell it out in like a week and they want to order 10 more kilos, you bet you damn sure better have 10 more kilos sitting in your vault or you're going to be punished and you're going to go to the bottom of the queue uh, and they won't order it as fast back from you. So that's another thing that puts us in a parameter that's like, ooh, it's a little tight, right? We got to make sure the hash is available. It's why Micron Specific's just not in the in the in the cards right now. Because can you imagine selling a province ten kilos of ninety micron hash, and then them wanting to order ten more kilos a month later? And what happens if uh, Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Newfoundland, and the uh, you know wherever is also wanting to order ten to fifteen kilos? Like, so there are logistics to this that most probably aren't aware of. But uh, we're focused on these logistics. We're not letting them bend us completely. Um, we're still focused on finding like the best possible grown product that we can, you know, and and really kind of ideally getting that grower a good price for that material because we're going to turn around and, and make a nice margin on the, on the extract. Yeah. You know, and even with all these limitations, Marcus, I'm curious how that feels as a Canadian and just as a person who has loved cannabis since they smoked it at 14 in a dumpster, basically. Well, how it makes me feel. Yes. It makes me feel elated. I'm absolutely elated. Now I realize it's partially like, okay, it kind of makes me feel like we should be celebrating a little because we don't celebrate enough. We're just always pushing and pushing and pushing. So it should be celebrated and really enjoyed. At the same time, I have a vision and I'm not there yet. And so I've got a good 20 plus years left in me of just doing what I'm doing right now, pushing the envelope on this hash thing, on this extraction thing, and seeing if we can't get full melt six star bubble to the masses for a price that is affordable. And what would that be just out of curiosity? Well, I mean, you know, for the nicest, nicest, nicest six star, I think it's, I, I would, 
you know, I hear people say when, oh, five, 10, $20 a gram. I think if it was $50 a gram, that would be incredible. I think 50 Canadian dollars a gram would be absolutely incredible if we were able to buy it for that. So, you know, let's see if one day we can get there, you know, because right now that's definitely, if Full Melt Bubble was sold on the Canadian market legally, it would for sure be a hundred dollar gram. Yeah, double basically. So I can't end this before talking about drying resin. Now, obviously now you're using freeze dryers, likely in these commercial settings, but back on the, in the cardboard days, you know, how did you get to that point? And how do you feel about having taught people to dry on cardboard? I feel pretty good about it, actually. Um, keep in mind, I'm in the Pacific Northwest. So when, you know, the first person came out, it was probably nicotine that was seething microplaning onto parchment. Well, parchment's not a desiccant. It doesn't absorb moisture in any way, shape, or form. So he started convincing people in the Pacific Northwest, oh, just put your hash on parchment inside the cardboard because it shouldn't go on the cardboard. Well, I was the one photographing the hash with a very strong micro lens, and I wasn't seeing any contaminant whatsoever. So all this illusionary contaminant that people were like, well, what they would do is put a huge clump on the cardboard and then rip it off and the cardboard would stick to it. You have to sieve it thinly over the cardboard. And then the cardboard, which is food grade, also closes up and can, and maintains your hash from any type of contaminant like dust or hair or animal hair or whatever. And so, and I was in the Pacific Northwest. So nicotine was in um, Colorado where it's super dry and arid. So we're in the Pacific Northwest where it's like wet inside the house, like seven months of the year. It's just wet, 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 wet. I couldn't get the hash dry. And, and in fact, what I was doing initially was I wasn't even drying the hash in the beginning. I would take wet bubble, leave it out for a short period, roll it into a ball, take a picture like Frenchie cannoli and be like, check that out. Look at my ball, temple ball. And people loved it. But then the, then the ball, I'd be like, oh, I'd even ask people that made temple balls. I'd be like, well, show me a picture of your temple ball every day for like three weeks at room temperature, not in a fridge. And what happens is the moisture starts buttering out the hash and it falls apart and it doesn't hold together anymore. And so that taught me that I needed to learn about drying the hash properly. Because to, to be honest, if you're making water hash, what you actually are is a hash dryer. So, <laughs> and if you're using lyophilization ovens, then you're almost, you know, just, you're kind of that guy maintaining the recipe to make sure that it's going the way it needs to go. Um, but the real you know, the real players are the growers who grew that material and the genetics that, that express themselves. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think that it was fine. Like pizza, I've got pizza boxes right here that I made a batch of bubble that they're all closed in and sealed in. And there's been no hair and no dust and no debris. And, and the desiccant action of the cardboard pulls the moisture from gravity. It wicks into the cardboard. The top layer dries, the bottom layer wicks into that layer dries. Then it goes into, cause the cardboard is corrugated. And so as it goes through the levels, it's just pulling the moisture out. And so from a small stance perspective, getting your hash dry to me was super important. And I would tell people, listen, if you're out in Arizona, you don't need to put it in a pizza box if you don't want to, although I still would just to protect it from being knocked over a pet, a kid, whatever. 
I would still put it in there even if it was on parchment. So now I use lyophilization ovens. Fletcher from Archive Seeds brought this to our community. Harvest Right being the company that everyone started with. Lab Conco being the one that everyone will probably finish with. Um, I use them both uh, daily and uh, I can't say enough about lyophilization. Once you dial it in and you figure out how to sublimate that water out and you have, and you can figure out how to maintain your vacuum and your terps, it's really quite a powerful thing. And it ensures a lack of moisture, which will ensure a lack of microbials. And when you're in a regulated uh, atmosphere, like I am very hyper-regulated yeast and mold counts need to be extremely low and so, yeah, drying the hash becomes very important. You know, not having cozies around the cans that the bags are touching. Um, I can dry the bags and wash the bags uh, easy enough, but the cozies are foam and they're thick and they tend to hold things. And as well as we cleaned them, when we started doing microbial swabs of the room, we found that those had contents that were just, it was just getting to a level we weren't comfortable with, particularly because when you see a microbial content in flour, you have to understand that that content is about to be concentrated by about four plus times when you concentrate the resin out of the flour. Right. Yeah. It's a super concentration. Well, man, let's end with hash church. You know, how did hash church come to be? I think in part you're credited to having put a lot of work into your channel and in essence getting a, almost a perk of being able to go live. Yeah, exactly. I was putting a lot of energy into my channel. I was trying to, you know, trying to monetize my channel, make a little money off the YouTube channel, but also get great information out on the channel. And as I started building my traction, I kind of felt like, okay, there's two routes I can take right now. I can make this all about me, which is what it's been about. Or now that I have an actual audience that's paying attention, I can start bringing in the incredible people that I know and giving them a platform and sharing space with them. And that was the right decision to make. So YouTube sent me an email one day, very, very randomly. And they said, you've, you've acquired a new milestone. You can now go live on your channel. And I was like, what the fuck is this? So I started, I, I started following it and I was like, okay, well, I'll call it uh, it was a Sunday, Sunday morning. I was like, I'll call it hash church. Yeah. Cause we used to do church at my friend's restaurant, Amir had a restaurant named Rhyme. Rhyme is Amir backwards. He was a Turkish fellow, good friend of mine to this day. Great, great guy, hash lover. He had this restaurant. He said, hey, on Sundays, why don't you guys come over? We'll go up to my upstairs deck and we'll just smoke. And we called it church. Hey, are you going to church tonight? <laughs> yeah, I'll see you there. So on that Sunday, I was like, well, yeah, I'll do church. But I couldn't just do church. And I was a hash guy, so I wrote hash church. And I went live and I sent the link of the live YouTube right to my Facebook and had random people coming in. Well, by the second or third episode, that's when I was like, okay, they shouldn't be that random because that's not working like magic the way I would hope to. I need to get spectacular people that I can curate to come to this channel. And that was one of my strengths that I brought to the channel was that I was able to know so many people. And for whatever reason, when I asked them, they'd be like, sure. And then people like Todd, who was a huge benefit to Hash Church, like we definitely miss Todd on Hash Church. It's unfortunate that it played out the way it did, but he would invite amazing and wonderful guests. And he, you know, I think that's what made him feel kind of like, hey, Hash Church is mine too. And I was like, you know, you're right. Hash Church is yours too. Not that he's ever said that. 
But by asking me to have a, a member leave, I, that really implied that, oh, you now feel that this is yours. It's like, no, it's actually still mine. And I got to make that decision. But he helped curate some absolutely spectacular guests, uh, you know, from Dr. Lester Grinspoon to uh, Freeway Ricky Ross to, you know, Mel Frank, some really great folks. So we miss that uh, about uh, uh, not having Todd for sure. And, and great knowledge too. He always had great knowledge and great stories. Yeah. And I wanted to take a quick moment to, you know, say rip to Horatio. I know he passed recently. So, you know, I don't know if you wanted to say a little bit about him since you get to know him a little more than most of us. Yeah. I mean, it was a terrible loss. You know, I, I, I loved Horatio, you know, when I first met Horatio, one of the things he said to me was, he said, I came from Hollywood. I used to have like 200 people working under me. I, I have to put my ego in a box for this community. You guys could not handle my ego. And I was kind of like, Ooh, weird. That's a trippy thing to say. So he was, he was always just very pleasant, very, very nice. We, we just got along right up to the day that we didn't get along. And, you know, that day just, I don't even remember how it played out, but I know that he cut off an enormous amount of people, you know, John Burfello included. He just went into his hole at that point. And I think he had put himself out there so much that he was ready to go into his hole and just kind of go back into the lab and do his R&D. But I feel blessed to have shared uh, time and space with Horatio. I was glad to give him my platform and to get him exposed uh, to all of the people. So many of the people that know him know him through my platform. Um, in Vancouver, he had his own platform. He was out and about. He was showing people his delimiting extracts. He was, you know, selling it at stores. And so he had that exposure. But the worldwide exposure that he got definitely came from Hash Church. Uh, and he's, of course, also missed. Um, it was terrible what happened to him. And uh, yeah, rest in, it rest in power, uh, Horatio. Absolutely. Well said, man. You wanted me to remind you to bring up Q-tips before we end it. Yeah, we got to do better as dabbers, everyone. You know, I think that uh, even using some sort of like recycled paper towel, <coughs> breaking little pieces off, pouring some DC glass cleaner on there, and then using your dabber to clean the banger. These Q-tips are no bueno. You know, I think we can do better. I hope we can do better. Um, they're very wasteful. We're all dabbing an enormous amount. And uh, yeah, I just think that that's something that should be said. We can do better as, uh, wouldn't it be cool, you know, uh, start a hashtag, no Q-tips. And we start offering explanations and what are we doing and how are we doing it? And, uh, you know, what did you come up with as a, as a good alternative that's uh, maybe a little more earth friendly, maybe a little more sustainable maybe a little bit uh, more organic. I'm down with that, man. Totally down with that. So if you had to summarize what you feel is your biggest contribution to cannabis, what would it be, Mark? That's a really good question. What is my biggest contribution to cannabis? I mean, I don't know. I feel like my biggest contribution has been that I've always listened to her. You know, I've always listened to her and I've always been uh, a humble servant of Ja. Keep the ego in check. Be a humble servant. Don't be a legend. Don't be a king. Don't be a prince. Just be humble. 
And, uh, you know, I feel blessed to have had the experiences that I've had getting hemp growing with my, with my buddies, my activist buddies, you know, helping the compassion club was, was a high point of my life, turning the world onto water hash, like thousands of people worldwide has also been an absolute, uh, blessing to be on the side that I've fallen on all of this. And, uh, yeah, I'm just super, super appreciative that, uh, that it's lasted as long as it has. And, uh, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. Yeah. If anything, it's growing, man. So that's cool to hear. And I appreciate you sharing with us, you know, last question, if you could hear anyone on the podcast, since you're a listener, which is wild. Bubble Man is a listener of the podcast. Who would it be? Oh, geez. Who would it be if I could hear anyone on the podcast? I think that's easy. It would be Skunk Man Sam. The grandfather of our movement. Hey, I think that's a, a great choice. And like I've told you a few times in this conversation, that I'd love to get the opportunity and the uh, yeah, you're the only link, man. So like I said, if if Skunk Man Sam is down and you can make that link, I am totally down to do that because I think he's such a important part in history, important link in this hash story. And so, you know, it'd be legendary to have him on for sure. Yeah, I mean, if you want to keep going back, right? Like, you know, you've you've done a lot of great hash makers. You got back to some almost the start of water hash with me, but with Sam, I mean, he helped birth all of this. Yeah, exactly, man. Well, yeah, that would be, uh, it's definitely on my, on my wish list. So we'll see what happens, but Mark, incredibly appreciative of your time. I know it's been a long day for you and I've taken time away from, you know, you and your family. So thank you again. You can follow Marcus at BC bubble man on Instagram or freshheadies.com and bubblebags.com. Marcus, anything else that you want to say before we end? No, man, just that I appreciate you and what you're doing and keep doing it. And uh, I'll keep listening and uh, may the full melt bless your bowl sooner than later. <laughs> Likewise, man. Thank you, Marcus. And everybody else will catch you later. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you'd like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.